this episode has been a long time in the making. Uh, I want to talk about logic and reason. The, the problems I've faced with logic and reason is, um, like pretty much everyone in the world, um, we go through life and start out very curious. We ask why a little bit too much until we eventually start breaking the reasoning of adults where they say that's just the way things are. This is what I now understand is uh, where curiosity can break collective reasoning. Societies throughout time have uh, used collective reasoning to both support logic and to undermine logic. Um, The problem is, is throughout time and history, the understanding of logic hasn't always been complete. We, We do a pretty good job of projecting what we are able to know now on to people in the past. And this is really, really dangerous when we live in an information age. And we can look up not just, you know, logical fallacies, but we can look up all the logical fallacies that have been discovered through the world that may have been apparent in some civilizations in some corners of the globe. Um, But were not obvious in others because of the way that their collective reasoning took them to not have to face logical fallacies that another part of the world may have faced constantly. And this is why morality seems relative when you start to travel until you realize that we have been practicing collective reasoning since the beginning of human civilization Um And when civilizations start to overlap, when they start to have a lot of immigrants, whether they're taken in as slaves, whether they're taken through conquering, whether they, you know, immigrate peacefully, um, this starts to break collective reasoning of cultures uh, by introducing a new understanding of logic. It was something I didn't understand about logic even about a year ago was um, logic is a lot like sound or numbers. You don't need music or speech to have sound. You don't need instruments or sheet music to have sound. You don't need math and geometry to have numbers. You don't need to have pi in the golden ratio to have numbers. But understanding why something is reasonable is just as important as understanding why something is unreasonable, why something can be understood, and why something can be misunderstood. Unfortunately, through time, this process, which in our era is considered heuristics, um, by psychology it's called heuristics, um, and 
culturally through history, we've had many different names for this fundamental reasoning. Fundamental reasoning is bringing logic and logical fallacies back into the game and realizing maybe we took collective reasoning and made something illogical logical uh, by democratic consensus. This is really, really tough. This is why scientists constantly get misunderstood um, when they are talking about if something is or isn't possible. And it seems uncertain to an unscientific mind. Um, but actually, it is probably the most certain a scientist could be. It just sounds different. And this is the key. This is the difference. This is why juxtaposition versus juxtaposition exists is because reason can go beyond logic. Reason can break logic when it goes beyond logic. Logic needs to be what the Constitution was supposed to be for the states. Is But realizing that when collective reasoning overpowers logic is when you start to have a federal state instead of a federal constitution to limit overambitious states that want to infringe on human rights and then it there's no there's no way to question the state's reasoning the central state's reasoning if logic is considered to be reason and logical fallacies are not only not taught, but even if they're understood, they're understood partially. And it's very important, logically speaking, not to just understand why something is true, but why something isn't true. Why some people could believe something isn't true. This is why people could read a book of logical fallacies and be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then conveniently forget it because they don't internalize it. They don't want to practice it. They don't even know that they don't want to practice it. It's just we're so conditioned to forget by, you know, our genetic nature, by, you know, the way civilizations work, the way, you know, motivation and contentness are in a constant war with each other in the human mind. So we have to constantly remind ourselves that, you know, we don't always remember to be logical. And this is something that the more intelligent we get in a society, the more ways we can explain away why something is reasonable. But a child can say, yeah, but why? And we think, dang, they're not wrong, but that's just the way things are. Now, I don't know about you, but... I'm not naturally a scientist. I'm I'm a creative and I don't do well with the sciences. I I can barely speak <laughs> very well and writing is even more difficult for me. Um communication is very very hard. I spent 30 years figuring out how to communicate in a way that most people figure out by the time they're a teenager. Um but the problem that I face is is once I start to understand something and start to get better at it to the point where I have enough confidence in my ability to communicate ideas that I didn't come up with that are just 
existent in the universe in an almost an eternal nature, like numbers and sound and logic, that I find that the language that I used to be able to use intelligently fails me the same way that I could understand computer hardware, but computer code is just as hard for me as learning language. It's why I could spend six months in Mexico and my wife learns a new language like anyone else. And I am so slow at learning it that I actually slow her down. This is just how my brain works. But it also happens that my brain can retain a lot more than other people's once I get to the point when I understand it. Most people go from, you know, a basic understanding in several weeks to, you know, uh, a mediocre understanding within the first few months to um, an intermediate understanding within the first six months to, you know, an advanced amateur understanding in about a year to within several years, they have a practiced advanced understanding of things. So it goes from understanding the theory to understanding application um, to afterwards, they become considered an expert depending how many people believe them over other amateur experts with less experience. This is just how the world works. Unfortunately, um, the way my brain works is I collect knowledge and understanding with without bias, realizing if I try to choose the right way too soon, my hubris gets in the way, my intelligence runs wild, thinks that I'm absolutely right. So practicing heuristics, checking my logical fallacies was something that I was horrible at, despite having memorized them for close to half a decade. And then one day it clicked, like things do always with me when I'm practicing something new. I'd practiced tech for several years before it clicked. I practiced marketing for a year and a half before it clicked. I practiced growth hacking for about a year before it clicked. I, you know, this is just how my brain works. That was a deficit for so long. And other people would encourage me and, you know, try and lift me up because this would get me depressed. And now the point where I understand communication enough to express ideas, even though I can't communicate them perfectly, because honestly, it is a logical fallacy to believe that you can ever explain something perfectly. Because with so many different types of minds in the world, you may be able to communicate something perfectly for one group, but it will eventually break completely when presented with a different group. And you might have several groups that understand it more than they don't understand it and other groups that don't understand it more than they understand it and other groups that just flat out don't understand it no matter if it was a perfect explanation for the people who think like you. This is the problem we all face. What I realize now is I'm a creative that learned how to think like a scientist, not because I want to be a scientist, but because I wasn't content believing that they know things that me as a creative are not able to know and that it is my own limitation to not focus on their understanding 
that I could see was proverbially more logic logical than anything that I find. The world is about half creatives, half engineering thinking. It's a spectrum, but a binary spectrum, like a binary star system where, you know, it seems like we set up shop either too close to one of the binary stars and we either get burned, and if other people are sh- setting up shop around the other star, we run into the chance of co- collision. We need to practice wisdom and realize, even if we can explain why we should be closer to one of the stars, we should realize that we are only causing problems for ourselves, believing that you know this reasonable explanation is good enough. This is this is illogical to the core. And I, for one, have practiced illogical reasoning in ways that most people uh, used to mock. I have been a part of many scams and schemes and cults in the world before this stuff started to click. As I find many people who lean on the creative side, even if they're more functioning in a dualistic engineering type middleman society than I was... And now that things are starting to click, I realize that I attract logical thinkers in a way that I used to repulse logical thinkers with my absolute beliefs in conditioned collective reasoning. And collective reasoning is tough because it can work by democracy or it can work by isolationism. Both are equally valid in protecting uh collective reasoning. This is why we can live in a world where, you know, no longer before the days of modern communication are collective reasoning really limited to small cultured groups of new ideas that context and time will tell us whether or not they are good or bad ideas based on their results. This is where the word cult came from historically, cultured beliefs. These are what (laughs) cultured beliefs are exactly what religions were doing. That's why the word culture feels so taboo to, you know, religious minds. Interestingly enough, creative minds are more spiritual in nature than overtly logical minds. This is frustrating to creatives that try to, that can actually produce in a a purely dualistic, extreme dualism world like we live in today and are trained to reject the paradox of creativity rather than find harmony between, you know, creativity and paradox and on the other end duality and reasoning these things are a paradox it's not that reasoning is bad because there are some bad things about it it's realizing that it is both good and bad and logic is a paradoxical constant that can both form reasoning and break reasoning this is the world we live in this is what we've had to do with cycles of civilization throughout time this is why we get to the height of a human civilization and then logic breaks all the conditioned reasoning um, and then not only does that crumble that civilization but the next advanced civilization goes the other way with dualism they go the other way they go either 
extreme paradox in the beginning or extreme dualism. This is what happened with the Roman society. And then after the fall and the rise of uh, monarchies again, and then the rise and the fall, and now the rise of you know, Republican and then democracy and then the out of control democracy that's more powerful than a republic as, you know, both Socrates and Benjamin Franklin predicted always happen with democracy until we can figure out a better way to have democracy, which was the ideal, a better way to have that than with a republic. This is the time we live. It's so paradoxical and dualistic that the seemingly knee-jerk reaction when faced with an extreme dualist society is to go extreme paradox. This is why we have, you know, an alt-left form and then an alt-right form to protect the status quo um, and label the alt-left as alt-left. The problem is, is neither one is right. You can't go extreme dualism or extreme paradox. If you go extreme paradox, you don't listen to people trying to find harmony between dualism and paradox because paradox is where things like logic and love and kindness and trust live. But Dualism is also where things like reasoning, cooperation, collaboration, innovation live. So we can't sacrifice one for the other. It's realizing that to the people on the alt-right, it will feel like even a harmonic balance is alt-left. This is why the alt-left feels a lot bigger than the alt-right is to people who are, you know, speaking harmony in the middle and all left on the far end where they don't want any dualism. But realizing that even capitalism is in dualism as much as socialism is in dualism. Paradox is how you get both to to work in a way where the individual can be capitalistic, but collectives can't abuse a democracy in a way where you can have both innocent until proven guilty and guilty until proven innocent, where one is really good for protecting the individual, the other is really good for protecting the individual against things like conglomerates or tyrannical governments. This is what we need to realize, that a future of harmony and understanding and love and kindness isn't from going from extreme dualism to extreme paradox. But it's also realizing that the journey there will feel like extreme paradox to anyone who is terrified of paradoxical truths like love, trust, kindness, and logic. These are the things that you cannot be afraid of one of these and not have a subtle fear that you are not aware of of the rest. This is just the paradox of what feels like absolutism, but is just logic. It's, it's not bad to be worse at one thing than other things. Nobody beats themselves up because they're not a quantum scientist. Just as nobody beats themselves up because they're not, you know, it's, <laughs> they're not able to understand how to run a criminal cartel. 
this is <laughs> this is really really interesting because it's finding harmony like a yin and a yang between paradox and duality it's not keeping them separate it's realizing for there to be harmony duality needs to tolerate a little bit of paradox and paradox needs to tolerate a little bit of duality and learn to find the benefit in equal halves this is why people on the far left can see someone like jordan peterson and want to reject them completely, have a love-hate relationship with him where they don't know how to just have a love relationship with people that are different than them, which is okay. It's not wrong to not want to agree with people. It's realizing that people like Jordan Peterson are on the left, but they understand how to apply things like logic and love to an extreme dualism world that people younger than his generation without his training or without his training don't understand because he has a knowledge base that is more encompassing than most young people can begin to comprehend and why the very few young people that are trained in his field defend him and are called alt-right, even though in essence he is so far harmonic left that people on the left without his knowledge base consider him alt-right because he's bridging the gap. He's bridging the divide between the alt-right and the middle-right, the ones who are questioning the collective reasoning and following him. And it's realizing that if the people on the alt-left can label everyone on the right as alt-right, depending on things they don't understand, things that will work in the now to build to a more harmonic future where for a while the rise of paradox will feel crazy to people on the right, but the people who are open to change, open-minded to change, will adapt if given time to transition. This is why people like Jordan Peterson are essential in this transition. This is why people on the right and the left, on the paradox and on the duality side, on the religious side and on the scientific side, should definitely Listen to people that make them uncomfortable, like Jordan Peterson or Joe Rogan or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. It's realizing that a scientist is more likely to thrive in paradox than a creative that thrives in collective reasoning. The problem is, is the people that are more inclined to be that creative that loves collective reasoning it needs to realize that given enough time, unless you're immortal, it will break. Unless you're an immortal, benevolent, you know, all-powerful leader, it will break over time. And we need to look at the scientists to give us hope for better tools than a republic to have a democracy, tools that exist right beneath our nose right now. This is the crazy thing. It's realizing that because we're afraid of what's different, 
which can heighten awareness. We also need to heighten awareness of ourselves to realize that fear doesn't serve us once we're aware of it. Like there is no way to have self-serving fear. Realize that even fear that is justified that, oh, I'm afraid of the bear, given enough time and enough generations of people who don't understand the lessons that are logical that you may understand just because I'm afraid of it doesn't mean I need to kill all the bears. But given enough time, your logic of, okay, if that bear is going to threaten you, kill it to protect yourself. But it's realizing there's also a wisdom of, I don't poke the bear. And if I'm not aware that I'm poking the bear, then I'm not justified in killing it. It's more justified in killing me unless I believe that I am a superior being no matter what is reality. And this is where logic can break reasoning. It's realizing if you are poking a bear and it starts to eat you, it's more justified than any of your family could be to say, okay, now we need to make sure that all bears are dead. This is, this is the world we live in. We have to find harmony between paradox and dualism. We need to find harmony between spirituality, which is more commonly incubated in religion and spirituality that doesn't care about religion, but cares about science. This is the reasoning that will lead to a, a logically reasonable society where logic is understood in the way that it used to be carried on through stories. And now it can be carried on in our memories in a way that we don't need stories to tell us good news, good information, good ideas. The internet is the perfect incubator as it does not tolerate bad ideas, even if they're wholeheartedly believed to be good ideas, it will weed out all the bad ideas. It is very, very harsh on bad ideas. At least it was before 2008. That's when it started to become a safe space. And, you know, you have lots of safe spaces all over the internet now, where now you have warring safe spaces within warring safe spaces within warring safe spaces. You have, you know, Reddit, which used to be the ultimate unsafe space. And now it's leaning more towards having incubated, tolerated safe spaces the same way that on the other end of the spectrum, Facebook is nothing but a toleration for safe spaces. And it's realizing that, you know, Regardless if something is illegal or legal, Facebook will make safe spaces for bad ideas more often than it does for good ideas. A lot of this shift started to happen after the congressional hearings um, for Facebook. This is an interesting fact. This is when a lot of the the immense shutdowns of Facebook groups and pages started happening in rapid succession where they were a rare occurrence, leaning more towards collective reasoning that defied logic that engineers can see. And they saw it as anti-religious or anti-belief. you know belief. It's, it's realizing that the Nazis believed in what they did. 
The same way all religions believe in what they do. The difference is the outcome. It's always the outcome. It's not saying that since the Nazis believed in what they did that all religions are Nazis. It's realizing that it's a radical ideology. Like a cancer. And Nazism was, you know, a cancer right out of the gate that said, I'm not cancer, and people believed it, and they were sold on it, and they figured out they were duped pretty quick. But given enough time with collective ideology that defines collective reasoning, given enough time and enough shifts of, you know, humans in control, you know, even collective reasoning, no matter how benevolent, will break down. This is why... Russia, practicing socialism, went a lot longer until they started breaking down the same way Nazi Germany did. But interestingly enough, it was the quote-unquote success and hidden atrocities happening, the you know occult atrocities, the hidden knowledge, the hidden truth of what was happening in the socialism in Russia that made even Americans believe that maybe socialism could work. And then there was a debate between whether or not they wanted to go communistic socialism like Russia or fascist socialism like Nazi Germany. And this was a debate, you know, when Hitler was on Time magazine. This was a real debate that blows most people's minds. Like this is this was the reality that they lived in. There was a time when people were arguing the merits of Hitler's fascism and Stalin's communism. Because there were believers in America of socialism that wanted to believe one of them was right. And when Nazism like went south real quick, that was the proof that communist socialism was the you know the good option and then shortly after world war one they found out okay no it just lasted a lot longer until it got to the same atrocities and this is the problem of running a paradoxical thing like you know social impact with a dualism model this will always happen when paradoxes run like dualism. This is why socialism, even somebody who was raised religious in multiple different religions, studied in all of the religions, modern religions, and recently studying ancient religions, understanding that these always break given enough time. This is what absolutists do not want to accept this, you know, eternal truth that belief systems break simply because people change. And unless you don't think that people change over time, you'll need to question whether or not you think people can ever change, which kind of breaks some of the fundamentals that religions teach, but people kind of forget based on if you look at the context of their choices and the way that they actually believe despite what they're saying they believe. This is why context is so important. This is why so few people look at context. This is why we need to find harmony between paradox and dualism because right now it's not that dualism is bad. 
Dualism just is. But we're in extreme dualism right now. And that is bad because it's providing bad results. Just as, you know, paradox is not bad because love isn't bad. Trust isn't bad. These things aren't bad. But it's also realizing that, you know, just because science seems to love paradox and scientists can be good moral people if they practice logic, the same way that religious stories helped people remember, you know, logical principles and understand not just why they should practice logical principles, but the logical fallacies which were so evident in religious parables over time. And it's realizing that it's we live in a much bigger world than any one of the mainstream religions knew about when they were founded. We live in an age of overwhelming information. And now we have conflicting ideologies where none of them are absolutely right, but not all of them are absolutely wrong. In fact, I don't know of any that are absolutely wrong. They all have at least a seed of truth left. Some of them have a lot more seeds, but the fact is, is all of them are dying. And instead of trying to save this dying plant because we think that, you know, we can save it. No, it's coming to the end of its life cycle. And it is either our choice to live in denial that we could save, (laughs) you know, and save this being that served us for so long and in doing so turn it into a Frankenstein monster, or we could understand that it's, laid seeds that we need to nurture, seeds that exist in the internet, not what the internet is now, but what it was before 2008. If you don't know what changed in 2008, look into, you know, how much information is generated every three days on the internet since 2008 and what the difference was before 2008 up until 2008. This will help you understand why you are feeling so confused. If you even lean towards the slightest as a creative, but you are not focusing your life on a creative outlet, you may have engineered a way to help yourself and other creatives, but if that's your main focus, this engineered middleman for creatives... You need to understand that the world doesn't tolerate creativity, innovation, love in an extreme dualism world. This is why people can even engineer a middleman position as somebody who leans more towards the creative and still feel unfulfilled given enough time. This is why we need to find harmony between paradox and dualism Stop blaming other people for the divides that, yes, they created, but we are creating new divides on the paradox end by yelling at people for divides that have been being, have started to been built 
long before anyone on this earth has been alive. That is the truth. That means we need to stop blaming other people for the divides that they have perpetuated or else we will be unaware of the divides that we are building on the paradoxical scientific side that the people that are perpetuating these divides that have been going on for generations before anyone alive was ever aware that they were building divides back then. We need to understand this pattern through history. We need to realize that in our effort for social justice or social impact or more equality or more love or more kindness, we need to realize that it will feel like we are tolerating the enemy on both sides. And we need to find out a way to engineer a way above our feelings so that we can realize that when we leave our feelings behind, we are left with our core emotions. That leaves empathy. That leaves love. That leaves kindness. And we are no longer struggling to figure out what place sympathy plays in our lives, what place pity plays in our lives or what place niceness plays in our lives. None of these things are love or kindness or empathy. They are the dishonest cousin of the good ideas that given enough time only provide bad results in context, just degrees of bad results. So we fool ourselves by thinking, okay, this percentage of bad results is acceptable. And unless it goes below this percentage, that's when it breaks. We live in a delusion where we're okay with imperfection because we believe imperfections exist when imperfections are a collective belief. This is something that in an extreme masculine world, because I'm, I'm not saying that this is, you know, this isn't because of some male hierarchy. This is because of an extreme masculine hierarchy. There needs to be balance and harmony between the masculine and feminine and realize that the justifications that go into the extreme masculines, whether or not they are male or female, that support hierarchies because they may be highly disagreeable and highly conscientious like I was and justify hierarchies like I did because they are afraid of fighting order through chaos because they need people to help them with that because if left to their own devices as an overtly individualistic society does that doesn't find value in harmony or collaboration, that the only other option is order out of chaos, realizing that it is an artificial sense of order that is an artificial sense of safety that makes people weak. And we can't blame them for wanting the safety in a world that is so chaotic that they didn't start. Nobody alive started. We need to stop pointing fingers, stop pointing blame, and realize that we need to guide each other. Realize there are no such thing as teachers, 
In the school of life, no one is a teacher. Everyone is a student. We are students leading students in realizing that this sounds a lot like the blind leading the blind. But in reality, it's like we live in a world where everyone is blind until we start to listen to the crazy idea that some people aren't blind. And we have to trust beyond our ability to believe to really realize that in a world where we thought where it's the blind leading the blind, that the people who said that they could see, but we're bumping into things just as much as anyone else, which is believable because if you're blind your whole life, you, you don't know any better. And the people who say, I never bump into things. Or I rarely ever bump into things is more realistic. I rarely ever bump into things. That's so unbelievable. They're like, that's a crazy blind man right there. Uh, like, don't listen to them. Like, let's let's look for the people who are marginally better at this than us because really they just make us feel like we're making less mistakes if they're the ones that are making the mistakes. This is <laughs> This is the paradoxical reality we live in. It's realizing that if we... If we spend so much time understanding why certain things are away, like the blind leading the blind, we also need to understand why things, you know, <laughs> cannot be a certain way. And we need to take that further. It's realizing even, you know, the parable that the industrialist, which me as a capitalist, you know, a natural capitalist is what I call it, where I... I I hate industrialism. I hate it. I, I'm pretty, pretty extreme on my end where I think that there should be nothing but personal brands that run capitalism. That way, it's not about contract deals where the wrong person can get something. It's realizing everything is based on personal trust. You separate personal property from private property, and you have personal brands. This is why they've succeeded despite the ability to control them by Hollywood and Disney. And, you know, personal brands have thrived with tools like YouTube and Instagram in a way that they're even starting to realize we're more than one thing. You can get even a little bit of celebrity as a personal brand, and they're even have like influencers are realizing that you know I'm more than one thing I feel like I've been trapped into because I'm into this brand because I've been trying to do what Hollywood has taught all of us to do with our brands whether it's in print or TV or movies or anything like Hollywood is so much bigger than just the movies it is every single form of entertainment to the point where they control fiction nonfiction they control the people who make the most in the legal system it's it's realizing it's a layers of indirect control it's democracy abused to lay out the same way that the founding fathers intended you know a republic to work but without the checks and balances this is the reality we live in and this is why creatives need to learn to question their beliefs all of them period because Unless you believe that you're a horrible person waiting to let loose on the world to rape and murder and, you know, rob people at gunpoint. 
you don't need to be afraid of letting go of your memorized collective reasoning. Realize that you figure out how to be you, and you will be surprised at how much better you can be righteous as a creative that has found a collective reasoning that you believe to be most right and let go of it because you're not going to go out in rape and pillage and murder and cheat on your wife unless you secretly want to do those things. Then you learn who you really are. It's not about letting go as an excuse. It's letting go so you have no excuses to justify your belief in imperfections. It's realizing that for decades, I was drawn down by this belief in imperfections because they were divinely justified. And I got worse over time. And I was beating myself up until I realized I'm not alone in this. Just other people are better at saving face and keeping these things private than me. I'm an overtly public person and the people who I was putting on a pedestal without them telling me to put them on a pedestal I just did it because it looked like they were getting it right more often than me I realized everything that I believed about them I was lying to myself because you know not only was I not asking the right questions but even if I did they would have believed that it's not my right to know that, you know, their privacy is about saving face. It's about, it's about ego. It's about pride. It's about narcissism. There have so been so many scholars that remind us that we are in the most narcissistic society ever, but it doesn't look that way because we can always find somebody more narcissistic than us. And this is what happens in extreme dualism. You start measuring things by degrees instead of just realizing it doesn't matter if, you know, Trump is worse or Hillary is worse than me as a narcissist. It's realizing if you have any narcissism at all, it doesn't matter who's worse. That's just an excuse to not work on your own narcissism because it's not as bad as them. For years, I didn't believe I was as narcissistic as people like privately believed about me. But as soon as I started to be honest about my narcissism, I got blamed a whole lot more for my narcissism than anyone ever wanted to when I was trying to be like them, when I was trying to be nice like them. Now that I'm practicing kindness and love and listening to myself and others, awareness of myself and others, not blaming myself for my fault or others, realizing that even communicating these things, I constantly get accused of being judgmental of others in ways that I'm aware that people are projecting upon me and I can't blame them because I used to do the same thing. And it's not that I'm in a better place or that I'm more righteous or that I've got it more figured out. No, we're all in the same place at different times. Realizing I felt wholly beneath every single person around me last year when it started 
And then at the end of last year, I realized everyone else was blaming me for talking about my personal truth, blaming me. This is what I believe. It's If somebody is talking about something, it's what they believe. It's always what they believe. People that practice collective reasoning can believe that it's absolute truth. And then anyone who says differently, that's what they believe. It's like, no, like everything is a belief as much as everything is a choice. It's realizing the choice always resides within and the belief always resides when, you know, a personal truth is communicated. A personal truth is truth inside based on choices that the individual makes. Once those choices are communicated, that's a belief until somebody else experiments with something different than what they do. And if it's not different, then to people who it is different, they think that it's what they believe. But what's interesting is the people who practice logic, who practice, you know, perfection and don't believe in imperfections get called everything from, you know, extremist religionists or extremist scientists. It's, it's they get called, you know, radical Christians or radical Satanists. They get called crazy on every end of the spectrum, but it's realizing that in extreme dualism, the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And if crazy is absolutely bad, then things that are paradoxical will always be some degree of bad. And we will always be chasing a phantom, trying to find a way to engineer our way out of trusting people, engineering our way out of letting love happen naturally, engineering our way out of all of these things. It's realizing that even building tools, scientific tools to have trustless systems does not mean that humans need to stop trusting each other. It just feels that way when everyone has so many trust issues that they don't see a way to trust because the way they've been taught breaks down a certain percentage of the time every single time and a certain percentage of badness every single time. These are the things that just are on repeat. And it's realizing that if you practice, this is why the people who invent the tools for trustless systems feel like it's a fool's errand to try and explain how things won't go to shit if people have better tools to trust each other. It's like the engineers aren't there to explain to people how they can fix their trust issues that they aren't even aware of. That's the creative's role. This is why creatives were the ones that took scientific tools and aim them at the human mind, the human consciousness for psychology. And this was craziness in scientific medical profession. Now it's mainstream. The same way that a hundred years ago, quantum theories were craziness. And in the 90s, it was borderline cult to most people that understood 
what was considered mainstream science and is still <laughs> pretty mainstream. But what's interesting is quantum theories have become more mainstream than ever, despite the democratic consensus in majority that said that quantum theories were just as crazy and culty than ever and they're just using the internet to gain traction. It's no, like it speaks to the logical mind the same way that psychology turned psychobabble into psychology by inventing psychologic. <laughs> this is what psychological study is, realizing that the babble isn't just absolutely bad. It's not that they're absolutely possessed or that they've, they're absolutely crazy, but finding the psychologic to find a psychological method that we call psychology to find rationality in the unrational mind by applying logic to it. This is the same thing we did with technology, realizing that technobabble with technologic applied it created a technological revolution to now we have technologists in technology. Technologists invent the technology that people who don't understand technologic and only hear technobabble can use technological tools that they can just call technology. It's a form of technological magic to anyone who hears technobabble when a technologist is talking about a technological process. This is the time we live in. Realizing that we need an era of technological psychologists and realizing that psychologists in the age of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky and Carl Jung and even Freud, it was an evolution that went from moving the best to better to now the better is good to even the point where what was once best is no longer even good. And now we are in an era where we need to have the same sort of philosophers that explored the scientific method applied to human consciousness. We need to apply this philosophy to decentralized tools known as technology that has been rising since the age of personal computers to mobile screens to now even decentralized open source tools that haven't really existed since the 1960s. It's just they're so much more all-encompassing. They look brand new, but open source and decentralization isn't new. It's been going on since the 60s, we just forgot about it because a technologist philosopher like Steve Jobs helped creatives realize that technology isn't a tool for the nerds. It isn't a tool for the geeks. It isn't a tool for the engineers. It isn't a toy for the engineers. It's a toy for them as well. And creatives have paved a way to a visionary future through creatives like Steve Jobs that were unimaginable to the engineers, but 
they've been keeping up with and innovating on to make a rapid success cycle that has surpassed our ability to keep up with it. We need an equivalent of philosophers for the human mind and the digital mind like we had for science with psychology and realized that there was a good side and a bad side. Freud got too involved with consumerism and that doesn't mean that all psychology is bad. It doesn't mean that anyone practicing psychoanalytics is bad. It's the paradox that over time, the people who are using it for good, even Freud in the beginning was against consumerism until his, you know, his wealth was destroyed and taken by the Nazis and he missed his safety and comfort and security and signed on with his cousin who he was, or not his cousin, his nephew. This is talked about in the Century of the Self, a documentary about Freud, you know, his teachings being used to invent consumerism by Edward Bernays, the founder of Bernaysian marketing, which is everything that is marketing that is not growth hacking. It is advertising PR. It's realizing that growth hacking is the ethical solution to Bernaysian marketing. Edward Bernays, he invented uh, PR. He invented, uh, you know, ad men. Like he literally came up with the word public relations after uh, the Nazi propaganda minister uh, who used his book, Propaganda, which he was propagating to corporations before the war, he had to rebrand uh, propaganda uh, and invented PR. So this is why um, we have a, a mass delusion that PR and propaganda are different, but they're not. The person who literally wrote both of the books on them was the same person who also invented admin in our craving for ads. It's realizing that we are getting out of this naturally. There's a transition out of it that, you know, mega geniuses like uh, Seth Godin and uh, uh, Jeremy Rifkin are engineering our way out of this um, and helping other engineers engineer our way out of this. This is why people like, you know, Seth Godin are so influential on people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Gary Vee and these revolutionary geniuses that are applying these, you know, ethical methods to uh, consumerism, to kill consumerism, to uh, the energy sector to redefine the energy sector. Um, it's realizing that, you know, you can't just get rid of, you know, consumerism by killing capitalism. You can have an ethical, natural form of capitalism, which is really, really missed when people look at Jeff Bezos because despite the conglomerate monopolies of retail, he has succeeded beyond their wildest expectations through absolute control. The same thing is happening with Elon Musk. He, he has engineered a way out of the energy sector's control in a way that we're realizing that everyone teaming up against him are really breaking their illusion that they're on different teams. 
it's realizing that it seems like all of Wall Street is against him. And for whatever reason, he went on to Wall Street too early. Put that in quotations. No, he he went on to Wall Street when he did with Tesla literally to show people the hypocrisy by making apparent the contradictions that were otherwise subtle. But if you look at how people are reacting to him, the people that are reacting, he's united people who are otherwise so busy arguing with each other in the news and in politics and in government and, you know, in the SEC and in, you know, Wall Street. He's united them (laughs) because they all target him equally. The same thing happens with Jeff Bezos. This is why me as a capitalist, at first, when I started to realize that industrialism was a problem, it took me a while to realize, holy crap, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are anti-industrialists. They just can't wage an anti-industrialist campaign literally because anti-campaigns don't provide long-term results ever. This is why Martin Luther King Jr. didn't wage an anti-white campaign and it worked. This is why, you know, Harvey Milk didn't wage an anti, you know, cisgender campaign and it worked. It's realizing that Nellie Bly didn't wage an anti, you know, mental health campaign, and it worked. Most people don't even know anything about, like, Nellie Bly, let alone the details of what she did that was so radical for the ethical evolution of the mental health industry, but realizing that people pay even less attention to Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky and Carl Jung And really, the psychologist that they think about the most when it comes to famous ones is Freud, which gets people to think about psychology less because he's been publicly discredited despite the fact that his psychological tools and methods are used more than any other in the effort to keep control over over people through consumerism, through government, it's realizing that it's like it's a false flag. They want you to hate and discredit and completely discount Sigmund Freud because even what they teach about in colleges about Sigmund Freud, for the most part, what's practiced and practices is just an innovation on Freudian control tactics. Things have changed so much that Freud is still more of a household name than Carl Jung, than Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky. Yet the things that have gotten better with psychology, like medicine, going from about a 50% chance you'd uh, get better, 40% chance you'd get worse, 10% chance you'd stay the same, to now... A 50% chance uh, you you get better, 40% chance you stay the same, 10% chance you get worse. This happened because of psychologists that most people aren't even aware of. 
that are looking for positive solutions instead of control from hubris and pride and arrogance that you know goodness can be controlled or enforced. No, a good idea doesn't need to be enforced. This is why despite the resistance to people like Daniel Kahneman and Emil Shaversky, which if you want to hear about their story, like Michael Lewis, you might have heard his works uh, or even seen movies out of his works like The Blind Side, Moneyball, Big Short, uh, uh, The Flash Boys, one of my favorite books of his. But undoing the Undoing Project is the story of these people who, you know, when people are talking about the money ball of football or the money ball of Wall Street or something like that's because of heuristics from Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky. It's realizing people want to, in the scientific field, they want to pick and choose heuristics like religious people want to pick and choose principles. It's realizing that, you know, the similarities between religious principles and scientific heuristics is shocking the way they are same the same but feel different because of how they are defined every single religious person needs to understand that heuristics are an easier way of understanding how to think about the principles that you've been taught that, you know, you may not want to admit that, you know, are, are really hard to understand how to apply them in everyday life. If you ever struggle with that, study heuristics. Because this is all rooted from understanding the relationship between logic and logical fallacies, understanding why something works and why it doesn't work so that you can't just do it and it works most of the time, and then you have no idea what to do when it doesn't work. And you think, this is just chaos, this is just paradox, these people are bad. It's, it, it makes it really hard to adapt at that point. But logic works despite reason. And we need to focus on this again as a society. We need to figure out how we can let ourselves accept the inconvenient truth that we are all students in life. We know more than we ever had and than we ever have since the beginning of human civilization, <laughs> you know, since the beginning of time as we know it. We need to realize that we, we need to reinvent a way, we need to reinvent our foundation in this digital age a more effective way to process information. The same way the rise in psychology in the 1950s was just as important as the rise of psychology in, after 1880, after Nellie Bly. It was just as foundational. It goes through cycles, realizing the rise of psychology in the early 1800s leaned too close to consumerism and American Anxiety was invented. You can read about this in My Age of Anxiety, a really great book, <laughs> really, really insightful book about how anxiety exists today, how it's existed in the past, bright yellow cover, really, really brilliant book. And it goes into how we're going through the same 
anxiety cycle that they did in the 1800s. Anxiety was originally coined as American anxiety because we were we had it so much more in America than anywhere else in the world. And now that America has made so many other places in the world like it, it's no longer American anxiety, it's just anxiety. But it requires the same results, the same, you know, drastic measures that make sense in hindsight like Nellie Bly did and realizing she had to drag, you know, what was considered the mental health industry out into the streets by going into their secrets, going into their occult hidden truths and dragging it out through the streets so people could see that and realize that now it's not as easy because the mental unhealth that was being practiced in these mental asylums that were treating people who were both mentally ill and not mentally ill, the people who just needed to be discarded by society, you know, wives that spoke up too much that were, you know, part of the rising feminist movement, uh, the pre-first wave feminine, all of this realizing that, you know, whether it was immigrants or women or, you know, people that were thinking too far outside of the hierarchical norms that weren't male, but were absolutely extreme masculine because they weren't just men doing this. It was men and women casting sisters, casting daughters, casting, you know, wives or casting, you know, mistresses into these insane asylums. And Nellie Bly's realization was that what they were doing was making Sane people insane and the insane were so terrified of getting the treatment that the sane people were getting say I'm insane they didn't want they were scared straight and they were the most obedient people but they were actually the ones that needed help and they were getting it by using fear in the right way realizing that oh man like our reality is so fucked up. I might as well just be scared, afraid, and silent and keep my head down like most mentally ill people today. The problem is that this isn't, this is not concentrated in insane asylums these days. This is distributed far beyond insane asylums to be practiced in many colleges, in many workplaces, in many homes, and that this is no longer as convenient as going into a hyper-centralized place that practices mental unhealth. And Nellie Bly can come out and say, this is where they're practicing mental unhealth. This means that literally it will feel like Everyone is practicing mental unhealth because it's so distributed, we practice it in degrees. So where some people are practicing on mental unhealth, others are not. Scientists that practice mental unhealth are practicing different types of mental unhealth than religious people that practice mental unhealth. The fact is, if we make hypocrisy the bad guy, we forget that it is a catalyst for change and that contradiction is the only type of hypocrisy 
that is the bad guy. All the other types of hypocrisy are what we need to accept because hypocrisy is the catalyst to change. Contradiction is rejecting change and incubating hypocrisy. Positive change comes from admitting, you know, that you're not perfect and that doesn't mean you need to beat yourself up over a belief in imperfections. It means letting it go in a way that is scary for a lot of people, you know, that are on the right or practice righteousness or practice religion or practice absolute correctness or, you know, absolute morality. It's realizing that sometimes... You have to go off the beaten path or else you're going to spend your whole life complaining about the beaten path having too many, you know, puddles in it. Grow up. Go off road for a while. Grow up. Like, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm not old enough to be saying this. I'm not old enough to, you know, have the kind of wisdom that is... Seems to most commonly come from people in age, unless you have a society that is so oppressive that it does the grinding force of life much quicker than we have been used to. This is the same thing that happened with the silent generation. At a much younger age, they were ground down by life to be wise. At the age of 25, 35 on average. It's realizing that we are now in that era with younger millennials and especially Gen Z. And because it looks different than when the silent generation grew up because they didn't have the capital to be able to inflate a bubble around a depression like we do today, the young people without the experience and connections to make it in a bubble society, get ground down just like the silent generation did by depression and war. We have an invisible depression and war that we try to ignore. That's the fact. It's one of them is passively ignored because of an ignorance of higher level economics that are failing across the board. All theories of economics were wrong. That's the inconvenient truth. As much as the inconvenient truth is for socialists that all socialistic theories are wrong. We're inventing new ways to bring harmony between economics and socialism in a way that breaks all the old ideas, all of them. At least partially. It breaks none of them absolutely because they all are based on a good idea that's able to be united in, you know, a digital future that, you know, there are people working on amazing things right now that are redefining economics and socialism in ways that feels mostly wrong if you want socialism or economics to be absolutely right. This is the paradoxical harmonic reality that we are entering in. And unless we get better at saying, okay, 
I can see how I was wrong. How can I be more right? And realize that that is going to be met with extreme cognitive dissidence with the extremism of dualism that we have in society today, that we need to have otherworldly patience when communicating with people on both sides of the spectrum, both extreme sides of the spectrum. It's why Jordan Peterson has such immense patience with people on the far paradoxical side of the spectrum that he has the wisdom and experience to explain in a way that The way people are getting pissed off who are pissed off at dualism and industrialism and these things are the ones they're getting getting really, really offended on their contradictions. The same way people on the right are getting really, really offended about their contradictions when pointed out by people who understand the goal is to have harmony between dualism and paradox on the left. And it's realizing that people who are on the right and on the left, but understand that there's a harmony between dualism and paradox are exactly why people like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan can have intellectual conversations that depending how far you go on the right or left, you can find people that says that's the most unintellectual conversation because they either hate Joe Rogan too much because he's too paradoxical to be on their side of the right and people who hate Jordan Peterson too much because he's too dualistic to be on their side of the left. This is this is the craziness of the reality where you can have essentially a civil conversation that defies collective reasoning of what is logical because they are focused first and foremost on logical progression of thought, adapting to the reality we live in, realizing that when all the religions and all the governments were built up, none of them had the information infrastructure that we have now, and it's breaking all of them given enough time. This is why most of the world doesn't even see that we have a globalist nation state that governments are trying to define Facebook's role in the world. It's like, the reality is, is anyone who's terrified that the government is a tyrannical nation state needs to also accept that Facebook has the tools to become a tyrannical nation state much more effectively than any type of human governance ever invented up until that point. That's the scary reality we live in. But I'm not afraid because I have listened to the bullshit long enough to understand why people believe in it and then it was my belief that it was bullshit and to realize I don't have to convert to anyone's belief to listen to them long enough to understand why they believe what they believe. Realizing that anyone who dismisses what people believe because they believe what they believe is more rational is egotistical and narcissistic, whether or not it happens on the scientific side or the religious side. This is the inconvenient truth of trying to find harmony between paradox and dualism, trying to find harmony between systems and love, between systems and trust, between systems and empathy, between systems and kindness. And it's why 
chasing extreme dualism is as much of a pipe dream as, ex- as chasing extreme paradox. It's realizing that I was just as wronged by the medical and psychological industries as anyone else, maybe even more so because I trusted them more than most people would let themselves. But I also don't blame them. They were practicing. It's realizing that my choices are you know, just as at fault as their choices because it's not some secret esoteric club where every single person in the medical you know, industry is in on it. When the reality is most of the people that were quote unquote in on it, we're aware of started it, but it's extremely arrogant to believe that they could have seen the future that we're at now and that their ego didn't just get the best of them and people didn't want to question their ego because it worked and then over time it broke down more and more. We need to make sure we don't fall for the same trap by saying that the medical industry and the psychological industry is completely and utter bullshit, absolutely. It's realizing unless we understand why it doesn't work, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater because we assume the baby's dead. We need to actually do the terrifying work to check, the really uncomfortable and unsettling work to check. Because if you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you don't check to see if it can be saved and you just take it out and you're like, oh, it's not breathing. And because you don't know about CPR and you throw the baby out with the bathwater, this is exactly why people thought that, you know, zombies were a thing because they would grave robbers would dig up graves and find scratch marks on the coffin because people who went into a coma (laughs) would be buried alive. And then one day they'd wake up and realized they were buried alive, realizing that at that time, the best way to check if somebody was dead was to, you know, check and see if they were breathing. And if they're in a coma, the breathing could have been so faint that didn't come up, maybe because they didn't hold the mirror close enough to their nose. Maybe they were breathing so naturally through their nose and their mouth that they couldn't have held it close enough to get the fog unless it was pressed right up against it. And if they didn't do this, then the only other way they had to check was to poke them with something that they aren't going to react to because they're in a coma. And then they would bury them alive, even though they scientifically tested that they were dead. And now we realize it wasn't bullshit. They just didn't have enough information to know any better. So even the scientists were saying zombies are a real thing because I knew that person was scientifically dead and they came back to life. This means that the things we once thought were magic, eventually when they're explained, we realize that it wasn't magic. We just weren't as smart as we thought we were. And this type of hubris befalls the majority of religions, any religion that was not founded before the information age falls this hubris. Any religion that practices the same sort of absolute truth that was made popular before the information age falls victim to this. All of them. 
That's, that's the inconvenient truth, that we found tools to innovate that can literally prove that, you know, most beliefs are to some degree wrong. And this is what is really the inconvenient truth. It's realizing that if it was, you know, if you could be unaware of the percentage of wrongness of an absolute truth, it's only a matter of time between before scientists start to invent tools that, you know, you have to either accept that you were wrong and you guessed and you're filling in the gaps of things you didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. and You're filling in the gaps and not fall into the ego and narcissism to explain it all away and realize that everything is a degree of belief until you don't have to believe anymore, until you have the tools to know. And this, you know, this isn't anti-religious. This is like this same hubris befalls scientists. Materialist scientists have been doing the same thing to quantum science and people like Tesla and, you know, Carl Jung and, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky for like 150 years. Materialist science was originally the first dissenters against the hubris of religion. And now we've gotten to a point where we find, you know, kind of a harmony between science and religion. But it's realizing that materialist science is behaving in the same manner as uh, old fundamental religion that's been around more than, you know, 50 years. And it's to the point where they have fallen into what I call culturism. And we have a history of culturism that we don't want to admit because cults never got to a point where they were more than, you know, a small group with defined belief and dogma and never got very large before, you know, the collective reasoning or logic broke it down or stopped it. But in, a, in the digital age, what's happened is we've redefined you know, the cult-like mindset to not need, you know, a defined, you know, strict dogma. It's, it's realizing it's a combination of partial understanding and our own fears and anxieties and reactions to the world, thinking fast when we should be thinking slow or thinking slow with explanations when we should be thinking fast. And that leads to nothing but inaction and fear of making a choice or making excuses for not making a choice. This is, this is why materialist science has fallen into bed with old fundamental, you know, culturism that they used to fight in religion. And now most of them are not even trying to find a way to get out of this narcissistic position, this egocentric narcissistic position that they find themselves in that requires admitting we were wrong to the point where they're going to lose authority. They're going to lose the authority to control um, that goes far beyond religion and uh, science and this needs to be understood and communicated better than we're able to communicate it. Realize I'm not very good at communicating this stuff. Like I just spent an hour and a half explaining things that 
Number one, I'm not qualified to explain, which is why I point to so many resources that I know in an instant gratification society, most people are going to come up with really intelligent excuses why they don't need to study these things, why they know enough, why they could look up the summary of the book and apply it to what they know and fill in the rest with beliefs. Like this is this is the problem we face in a society that can barely even listen to an hour and a half podcast episode, let alone, you know, read anything that takes longer than 20 minutes or an hour that could take days to finish a complex idea that isn't doesn't feel as good as a rationalized, oversimplifies, over, oversimplified bad idea that feels good if you can ignore um, why it's wrong by cognitive dissidents, justifying that with genetic fallacy, all sorts of things. Like, this is the craziness we live in, realizing that I am a creative that understands things that most creatives don't let themselves understand because they make really, really, you know, great justified excuses why they shouldn't know these things and why it should be simple, why they should just get, you know, a reasonable, like, you know, idea of how to do this without, you know, doing a conversation that's more uncomfortable than a 50-minute conversation that, like, you know, feels really uncomfortable, feels like a lecture because they want everything to be easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. Because they live in a nice reality where nothing is so hard that it takes weeks or months or years to work on until you can get it right. This is why they're really good at a lot of things, but they've mastered nothing. This is why people can be really good at marriage and then it just all falls the fuck apart. Nobody teaches these things anymore the way that religion was supposed to teach these things. So people don't know how to apply them to the paradox that used to be religion's territory. The paradoxes of energies and spirituality and, you know, feelings and emotions and all of these things. And now they are more on the side of fundamentalist materialist scientists that have found a way to enforce their bad ideas because we've outgrown them. This is the society we live in where quantum science has found a marriage of the principles of spiritual religions and the principles of science in a way that breaks fundamentalist religious beliefs that have become so mainstream they they can democratize the democratize the fact that they aren't fundamentalists. This is why, you know, they're not, you know, a culture they're more than their culture. It's like, what's more than their culture is their ability to control. And if their ability to control was so benevolent, why wouldn't they be conflicting with the culture that the people who are questioning the culture of these culturisms are really scared to admit are much larger than the group who are questioning the culturism fundamental ideology that, you know, isn't really making progress, that's breaking things down over time, that used to be private, but now everyone can know when you've gotten a divorce or when things don't work out. And it's realizing it hits closer to home 
when you can't live in constant denial of all the things that aren't working out. And it's we start to realize, you know, the numbers don't serve us when even, you know, fundamental religions that are older than 50 years old don't don't have an explanation that suffices that, you know, they once believed that they had less divorce than any other, you know, than any other religion, than any other way to live. And then the numbers finally came out and then they realized they have just as much numbers of divorce as any other religion, as anyone else practicing any sort of belief or belief in unbelief. And this breaks their collective reasoning to the point where they dance around the fact that they were absolutely wrong. And they try and save face so they don't lose control. This happens in materialist science. This happens in uh, this happens in any religion older than fifty years old. Uh, this happens in uh, you know people who take spirituality so far that it is industrialized spirituality. This is anyone who denies whether or not their spirituality is industrialized and engineered to control them without their awareness because of the things that they think are absolutely wrong being used against them, like psychology and stuff like that. It's, it's realizing that at the top of corrupt socialism and at the top of corrupt you know, capitalism is industrialism. And at the top of corrupt medical practices, at the top of corrupt, uh, at the top of corrupt psychological practices is industrialism. This is the cancer that has infected the private sector, the public sector, and the nonprofit sector. This is why the world has generated non-governmental organizations because you realize that once you have, you know, your cancer infecting the for-profit, the non-profit, and the public sector, you know, you can justify away corruption in all three parts in a way that seems esoteric, but it's not because of secret, no, it's not a cult, it's, it's not hidden knowledge, it's, it's only esoteric that they don't want to try any better ideas and they don't want people to believe that their ideas are bad. It's, it's really esoteric lack of knowledge. That's why when people try and figure out what the industrialists know, what they're hiding, it's, it's like hunting. It's like it's a snipe hunt. It's literally a snipe hunt. They're looking for something that isn't there, but the belief that there is something there is exactly what the people who are called the esoteric occult want even the conspiracy theorists to chase that they have some secret hidden knowledge. When the fact is, is they have no different secret hidden knowledge than the people on the dualistic extreme. Otherwise, you know, the criminal cartels and you know, secret criminal underground organization. It's like they, it's, it's secret because people don't know how or what they're doing. That's the only secret they're hiding. It's, they're both doing the exact same thing. It's, but chasing the answers at the, you know, the esoteric top is going to be just as lucrative as chasing the answers at the esoteric criminal bottom. 
Like, this is the delusion we need to wake up from. This is a delusion that I didn't know existed, that I explained away brilliantly for years. And I'm working to open source that information so people can see how I didn't just magically come up with something that was right. It was years of, you know, experimentation of figuring out what works best, finding out a way that works better than any other way I've tried. I don't believe it's the absolute best way to work out. But the sad reality is I've experimented with most ways to find absolute truth. And I realize that I am now not alone in discovering that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And that when you realize that your absolute truth is just as likely to be true as anyone else's personal truth, that's the only time that absolute wrongness exists. It's, it's realizing the goal of absolute truth and absolute wrong is to neutralize each other, cancel each other out so we can learn a lesson that we shouldn't chase absolute truth because that's the only reason absolute wrongness exists. And absolute wrongness exists so people don't look at what is wrong. This is why you have these principles of, if you're in marketing, Bernaysian-style marketing, it's you know, Bernaysian style marketing, PR, advertising, and propaganda. It's the principle is if you want people, if you want people to hear you, tell them what is good. If you want people to listen to you, tell them what is bad. If you want people to ignore something, mock it. And then ignore it. And they will too. Because people listen to actions much louder than they listen to what is a good idea. And they listen to bad ideas much louder than they listen to what is a good idea. But they listen to people's actions much louder than even the bad ideas. And this is the world we live in where the esoteric, you know, actual knowledge that has been branded as a cult, which I find really weird because the root of that word actually means hidden knowledge. The sentiment of whether or not it is good or bad has been collectivized to be an absolute truth that occult knowledge is bad. But what surgeons know, if you're not a surgeon, is a cult. What an accountant knows that you do not know is a cult. This is what that word means. But in a world where people are afraid to say what they mean and don't understand how to hear or listen to what people mean is why they will hear what is good but not listen to it and why they will listen to what is bad and tell people that they don't try and hear that stuff. But they do listen to it. But everyone ignores the things that are dismissed with, you know, mockery or ridicule for a very short period of time and then ignored. They do this with so many things. I've seen it done uh, with people like Ron Paul where they're mocked briefly and then ignored. 
They do this with people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr., where they're mocked and then they're ignored. We feel like they listen to Martin Luther King Jr. because we have hindsight, because we listen to him now. But they, they mocked him and ignored him and realized he was still gaining traction in a way that none of the other civil rights activists up until him had. They had to just kill him. Like, that's the reality, that if things go further, people like Ron Paul won't get to survive. They will be killed. Until things reset. Reset as harshly as they did for the industrialists that were abusing, you know, black culture through industrialization. The same way they abused them when they were slaves. And they they did it in a more distributed manner through segregation. And now they've figured out a way to do it even broader by pointing their focus not on a race, but on systems of belief. And this is, this is what's interesting because you have systems of belief that have nothing to do with religion anymore. This is why culturism is not about religion. It is about whether or not your religion is a culturism system of belief, whether or not your political party is a culturism system of belief, whether or not, you know, your sports team is a culturism system of belief, whether or not a corporation that you like or work for is a culturism system of belief. And it's it's realizing that, you know, we thank Apple for giving us personal computers and phones, but IBM was the one who coined the frame, the cult of Apple. And Steve Jobs, he, he ended up liking it because he was culturing a good idea. And no matter what other people tried to slander him with, they it was only time that was needed to realize that they were wrong. And they were saying these things that were so below, so beneath their posture in the world that it became apparent that you know, they were losing control. They were saying things that they didn't need to. If they had the control, they were trying to make people believe they did. And the same thing is happening with, you know, the mainstream accusing people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk of running cult-like organizations. It's realizing that these things are culturing good ideas using decentralized technologies in ways that we haven't had 50 years prior to this with computing and internet networks. And, you know, there are so many internets out there and most people only think of the internet, like the God. When in reality, Facebook is an internet, Twitter is an internet, your Facebook group or your Facebook page is an internet within an internet within an internet. This is it. It's realizing the internet is not the internet. Like there are many other internets and the internet that you know now wasn't even what internet was before it became the internet. Like people don't realize that the difference between AOL and, you know, HTTP is 
was literally the war for the internet. Who was going to be the internet? This is the same war we have going on right now. It's like, is Ethereum the smart contract blockchain? No, like Bitcoin is not the binary contract smart uh, blockchain. It is, it is the blockchain right now. But interestingly enough, there are better ones out there for use of currencies or other things. It's like we have binary blockchains, we have smart blockchains, and now we are getting to understand the need for quantum blockchains. We're understanding the need for quantum civilizations, quantum government, quantum psychology, quantum philosophy. This is why, you know, this industrialist idea of siloing everything has been challenged by growth hacking, has been challenged by, you know, positive psychology, has been challenged by, you know, Eastern spiritual philosophy for hundreds of years. And we're starting to realize, okay, we didn't want to believe that they were absolutely right. But they're also not wrong. And this is all, you know, encouragement to... This is encouragement to figure out what's not wrong. Like, let go of what is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. Because if what you believed in didn't exist tomorrow, would you choose differently when it comes to core principles? You probably wouldn't be as afraid of being wrong because other people wouldn't have the means or the tools to judge you or oppress you or call you out on it if, you know, the main authority PowerPoint was gone. What I suggest is live like that's today. You will be surprised at how much more spiritual you could be, how much more religious you could be, how much more... Uh, let me rephrase it. How much more righteous you could be, how much more spiritual you could be, how much more righteous you could be. All of these things <laughs> require letting go and realizing that when you grab onto something new that's better, it's only a matter of time before that goes from being your best option to just a better option, one of many better options to you know, a good option that's been innovated on. And whether or not you live to see that happen, which is getting more and more common in this rapidly accelerating and progressing, you know, natural capitalism, natural impact, like natural positive infrastructure, we we call the internet, but is really just internets, is moving things forward in a way that positivity is winning. And it's only a matter of time before we hit that exponential curve and everything that was absolutely right and that we may desperately want to believe is absolutely right, like socialism or capitalism or in capitalism that most capitalists like me were brainwashed into believing was capitalism but was really just enabling industrialism and why good ideas like quantum capitalism, quantum socialism, quantum psychology are taking off in a way where they're providing long-term positive results. They don't need to be fixed because they actually get better over time naturally in a way that 
overly centralized, you know, systems that abuse democracies, whether they be digital or traditional, don't they break down over time. They don't get better. They need to be fixed because they break down over time. Quantum systems don't do this. They get better over time. They grow naturally stronger. This is not like what people think about when they think of, you know, AI that gets better over time. It's like, it's realizing this parable has been explored in fiction and nonfiction alike, but most people don't explore the nonfiction stuff because, it's outside of their wheelhouse, so they only pay attention to entertainment stuff. But realizing that Skynet, that is centralized artificial intelligence. In the same way the Nazis were centralizing their intelligent fascist structure, it gave power to something that had to be stopped. Centralized artificial intelligence would be the same way. But decentralized artificial intelligence is as, a, as threatening as a calculator. Realizing that if you were a human calculator, which existed before the calculator was invented, the calculator as you know it felt the same way that centralized artificial intelligence from Skynet feels to anyone who doesn't know how they could use that tool to be even more powerful. Human computers kept us from having mathematicians. Human computers being, you know, made obsolete and everyone can have a computer in their pocket has given everyone the capability of being a mathematician. Where mathematicians were theoretical philosophers up until the calculator became became mainstream this is this is just how evolution of ideas works we need to realize that all of the things that ai could replace if you are open minded enough and strong enough to change and grow which will feel like growing up again Guess what? It doesn't matter how old you are. You have to grow up again in this changing time. This is, we, we've been duped by lots of industrialist systems of, you know, cutting principles in half, cutting logic in half and taking one side of it and ignoring the other side. Like the story of Icarus, Seth Godin told a story of Icarus that I remember seeing in a, in a video where Icarus flied too, flew too close to the sun and his wings melted. That's only half the parable. His father taught him not to fly, you know, too low either because it's, you know, you'll get caught in the trees and you'll get torn down. And when he almost got caught in the fog and, was falling like in his effort to get out of the fog he he soared up higher than ever and forgot that he was soaring too close to the sun and fell to his death it's realizing self mastery is you know finding that harmony where self control can help you from falling down too low 
but if you only know about, you know, it's bad to fly up too high and you don't know about it being bad to fly too low, then the human nature to be lazy and content and, you know, want the vacation or want the weekend or want retirement or want, you know, paradise after death will eventually find a way to justify, you know, being in the fog and getting caught in the trees. This is just the way life is. It's imperfect. It's realizing that this shatters all of our realities. It shattered my reality. And right now, depending on how good people are at listening, I either look like a complete failure or I look like a get it. The fact is, is they're both right because both of their beliefs are valid because they choose to believe those things. But time will tell which one is more likely to be right in the long term. I could justify both ways. Absolutely. Like I could absolutely justify both ways. I could absolutely justify that I am a failure but I don't have the goal to be this way forever. And I could absolutely justify that I am a great success and I see things getting even better because I'm only scratching the surface. This is the paradox that needs to be introduced to mental health, to reawaken an interest in self-awareness in self-mastery so that people like Jordan Peterson or Gary Vee or Robert Greene or Seth Godin can be better understood because all of them are not wrong, but all of them are not absolutely right for everyone. This is, this is the paradox of reality. You either choose to accept a truth that may be new and different, or you don't. Because you know what? The world may not remember that there was a time when people were complaining that calculators were going to create mass unemployment but we also don't care. So complaining about radical change, you know, isn't going to benefit you now or in the long run. It's just going to make you more angry, more upset. And it will lead to all of your worries, not only being forgotten, but being pretty laughable in the future. My goal isn't to tear people down. My goal is to awaken people to a realization that is an inconvenient truth. It was absolutely an inconvenient truth for me until it no longer wasn't. And I realized that nothing is absolute. Unless you don't believe in time, nothing is absolute. Things are only absolute in the right now. But then the very next moment, maybe even after your very next choice, it may not be absolute anymore. Believing in absolute truth, absolute rightness, absolute wrongness, absolute righteousness, absolute evil, it means you're in complete denial of how time works. And it means that you are living a life, whether or not you are aware of it or not, you're a prisoner of time where time is being used as a tool against you. And you think that time is a weapon that you are afraid of. You don't have enough of. You're always fighting against time. 
because you look at time as a sword, when in reality, you can't see that it's an image of a sword on a shield and somebody is hiding behind it. And your fear is being abused. Time is a tool. And when you start to pick it up and wield it, you realize it's not a sword. But you could choose to capitalize on fear or buy into other people's capitalization on fear and start using the shield as a sword because you still believe that it's a sword because you don't let yourself know any better. If you listen to anyone that peddles fear instead of hope, I'm not talking about accidentally. I'm talking about people who in context continuously peddle fear because that is a currency that makes us feel validated with a scary reality that we live in with extreme dualism. I'm talking about listen to the people who don't buy into fear. And even when they do, they learn their mistake. The same way Elon Musk was peddling fear about AI, and I can guarantee he understood that if we had emotional intelligent processors for intelligent processors, which we've invented because we don't give a crap about emotional intelligence in the Western world in a way that actually makes a difference, is realizing that if we could invent a computer that had both you know, a data processor and an emotional processor... It wouldn't turn into Skynet. It would turn into, you know, the best teacher we've ever seen, the best psychologist we've ever seen help us all in our own way figure out how to become more emotionally intelligent, become more emotionally aware, realizing our emotional intelligence sucks as Western society exists simply because our emotional knowledge is crap. We think feelings and emotions are the same thing. No, feelings are a reaction because we are afraid to be aware of our core emotions. We need to bottle those up. And we are driven by our feelings, unaware that a feeling that feelings do not lead us to core emotions like love or joy. So chasing happiness does not ever lead to joy. It's a fool's errand that consumerism and many religions like to make people chase. They like to, uh, consumerism, Bernaysian marketing loved plans of happiness. They built happiness machines that organizations used to help make people feel happy that wanted to chase happiness. But over time, they'd realize this doesn't provide me the joy that I thought it did. This plan of happiness is bullshit. And this is a very inconvenient truth, depending what part of, you know, mainstream consumeristic belief you belong to, whether it's religious or non-religious alike. So many culturisms practice plans of happiness that, given enough time, do not result in joy. They may accidentally, but the exception is not the rule. Exception is never the rule. This is why people who are fundamental religionists, they they quickly argue that, you know, rape is not the exception for why abortion should be, 
you know, you know, illegal or forced to never happen. It's like they're trying to enforce a bad idea. And the people who are saying that we need to figure out a better way than, you know, so that we can solve these, you know, these breakdowns that are growing over time. It's realizing that one side is arguing that people need to be more aware of their choices while they're making excuses to not be aware of their choices and enforcing, you know, a bad idea, which is literally just, you know, not figuring out a way to improve things, not trying to find a way to have harmony because they believe in absolute truth. They realize if they got exactly what they wanted and somebody in their religion raped, you know, their wife and they wanted a divorce and then as the divorce was happening they found out that you know they were pregnant and they didn't want the husband to have the same equal rights to the child as them so they to protect the future of the child so they wanted the divorce but the courts you know favored in one what was absolutely best for the child to have both parents. It's like, these are the, the nuances that, you know, a binary system doesn't support anymore. And what's problematic about fundamentalist binary definitions of morality is they consider anything smarter than binary, which is the difference between Alan Turing's, Alan Turing's binary computer and every single phone in everybody's pocket is much smarter it's why you don't have to learn binary to use a computer anymore because we figured out smarter systems and binary absolutism is no longer necessary. It has been proven invalid regardless of what people want to believe or are ready to believe or are ready to let themselves learn something new because it feels uncomfortable. It feels evil. The same way people on the extreme paradox side think that any sort of reason, any sort of, you know, everything has to be accepted, sort of like that's taking it to the extreme on the other end. It's realizing they're both equally as wrong and they're both as close to being right as, you know, you know, a child who doesn't know how to talk, doesn't know how to listen and doesn't want to do anything other than what they want to do. Like that's, that's how likely they are to be right over time unless they let go of these beliefs and they learn to first listen to uncomfortable things and also learn to not react when they talk because you need to listen past your comfort level to be able to not just react with an explanation of why you know you're not wrong why you don't feel wrong it doesn't matter what you feel your feelings don't matter. Like those, those are to keep you from your core emotions. Your feelings are not serving you. If you justify your feelings at all and you can't see a reality where you could live without feelings, you're justifying your feelings because they master you without you even being aware of it. Maybe not completely but enough to where you're not aware of how they master you. That's why it could feel uncomfortable to hear the idea that you don't need your feelings, fuck your feelings, but you can still have core emotions. 
It's why it may feel uncomfortable to hear that, you know, your beliefs are not useful in your effort to know more. They are now detrimental and you need to let go of your beliefs because they're keeping you from knowing more. They're keeping you from getting smarter. It doesn't mean that I believe I'm smarter. The fact is, is I was one of the smartest people in the room because I chose to only talk about certain things. If I chose to talk about things that other people seem to get because they were based on collective reasoning, I was the dumbest person in the room. That's the truth. Like, I, I went around my entire adult life terrified that if I said the wrong thing, people would understand how dumb I was because I'm so bad at, you know, what everyone else believes in. I was really, really bad at it if I wasn't quiet. And then I realized that I could be really, really good at it just by being quiet. And I realized, oh, that's what everyone else around me is doing. They're just being quiet. They're, you know, it's it's not about being honest all the time. It's about hiding the inconvenient honesties. It's, oh, it's you gotta you gotta save face. It's oh, it's 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 what's moral because it's for the greater good. No, that's justified moral relativity. It's realizing it's justifications abound. And now that I have done, you know, the crazy thing to let go of justifying things to promote my my faults, people people don't have the ability anymore on mass. There are a select few um that have a natural ability to listen. Um or like under, you know, children where they can listen with curiosity and not judgment and bias and, you know, <laughs> indignation based on ego and narcissism. Um, and the people who are able to listen like this surprise me who they are. They're people who are cast out by society. Um, people who are cast out by society and the subclasses of the subclasses, anyone who is, you know, labeled crazy, whether it's, you know, the crazy woman or the crazy dude or the crazy Asian person or the crazy, you know, native person or the crazy black person. It's like realizing that crazy is something that kind of unites all of us in a way where you don't actually have to be what most people would try to define crazy as to be crazy anymore because most people wouldn't dare define crazy as mentally ill. So the people that get cast out by being called crazy aren't even mentally ill by the most part. And if they are, they figured out how to practice mental health better than most people without mental illness. This is the shocking paradox we live in where words like crazy, words like mentally ill, (coughs) where words like crazy, words like mentally ill, Words like evil, words like conspiracy don't mean what they used to. I mean, there are smarter definitions now than the old binary definitions of things. It's realizing that there are multiple meanings to every word based on culture, based on genetic fallacy, based on, you know, the 
common definition of the word, based on the root definition of the word, based on how it's being used popularly. Like these are, we don't have one definition of anything anymore because what people mean is there's seven and a half billion ways to mean something. And words get in the way of that more than they help with that. That's why Alan Turing wanted a universal language. And even the father of binary, like a hundred years before that, wanted a universal language. And why people who, you know, castrated and pushed into obscurity so far that Alan Turing, you know, committed suicide. It literally, they castrated him because they outed him as gay and that was illegal in his area and eventually he was so discredited that they took the tool that he invented and didn't listen to him when he said that we needed universal language the fact is is we need universal language again but we need to break all the old ideas of what universal language could look like break all the ideas of language and realize what people mean is more important than anything else. Sentiment is being abused by industrialism, by using tools like NLP to understand people's sentiment that they don't even understand about what they're saying online that's free and available to the public. And, you know, industrialists, consumerists are abusing this tool and knowledge base to get these people to not only understand what they want, but to engineer their wants, to funnel every single last cent and dime out of them like a hidden secret fee and tax buried in consumerism, buried under, you know, capitalism. And this is this is sad. This is why the ad society is dying. This is why, you know, the PR society is dying. And this is why they're in denial when they talk to or when they hear people like Gary Vee or people like Seth Godin or something like Amazon and they get really pissed off because they're like, oh, Amazon undermined my business. I found a really lucrative product on it, made millions, and they took my business from me. It's no, like they didn't tell you to use Freudian, Bernaysian marketing tactics to engineer a want it's but you did and you made millions off of it hooray and they did free market capitalism and undercut you because they could and they were aware and they wanted to make sure that you know you couldn't abuse this anymore and if it's something that people really needed um then it's available for as cheap as humanly possible um, through Amazon pretty much at cost. And this deters uh, Bernaysian marketing, consumerism, PR, propaganda, like inspired by Freudian control tactics better and more efficiently than any government regulation. And you wonder why people like Trump are super anti uh Super anti Jeff Bezos. It's realizing, you know, 
even the situations he's going through right now with his divorce. It's they're focusing on him, not her, when in reality, nothing is ever one-sided. But he has the public's attention, and people would see it as wrong to go after her. And people on Trump's side would absolutely see it as wrong to go after her when Trump and the old industrialists, they hate Jeff Bezos. It's, it's realizing it's one unconventional entrepreneur that they wanted not to succeed for decades has succeeded despite all expectations that they were trying to set for us to become the most successful man in the world by means of like sheer capital that he holds when in reality like he takes less of a cut from everything on Amazon like Amazon takes less of a cut from everything on Amazon than retailers even gave suppliers which had the role of stocking their shelves. It's like, this is amazing. Like it's, they're cutting out the middleman so that any supplier could be any, you know, inventor. It's like they combine those two types of things where it's not about the middleman relationship between supplier and retailer and product maker. It's realizing product maker can be supplier and suppliers can be product makers on Amazon and they get the majority Instead of the old retail model where the retailer gets the majority, they get the biggest cut and they get to, you know, they get to say what does and doesn't keep selling. And Amazon isn't quite like that because the only things that they say can or can't keep selling are manufactured wants that are being milked for, you know, every cent they can be because of. Uh, an unawareness of of any competition to compete with them because they have market domination and they undercut them. And they do that because that's the same reason regulatory commissions would do that with uh, abuse in market authority. And Amazon doesn't want that to happen on their platform. This is the, you know, the anti-industrialist movement that can't be called an anti-industrialist movement because anti-anything doesn't work. Anti-smoking doesn't work. Who's the biggest perpetrator? <laughs> Perpetuator? I don't know the word, but who who's the biggest proponent for anti-smoking? The tobacco industry. Why? Because anti-campaigns don't work. That's why. We need to wake up to the fact that anti-campaigns don't work and we've all been trained throughout our life to have some sort of anti-campaign we believe in. And it may be painted to not look like an anti-campaign. But it is. It's realizing that if you are anti-something, even if you call it common sense gun laws, it's realizing that this sounds like anti literally if it requires registration of guns, if it requires, you know, certain people not being able to buy guns, this is an anti-gun campaign. It's realizing that, you know, that's the easy fix. The smart fix is 
how do we make guns less deadly? This is why, you know, there are inventors out there that have invented things that are significantly better than Kevlar that are like plastic, like saran wrap type plastic. And it's not just bullet resistant. It's by today's standards, it's bulletproof. It would, if this stuff was figured out how to get into clothing and paint and stuff, we'd redefine the deadliness of guns in a way where we could have layers of protection that are just the same as clothes, just the same as drapes on windows, just the same as the paint on our walls. Or it's, it's realizing that, you know, for what is, you know, dollars now for this saran wrap, like dollars compared to normal saran wrap, what is dollars now will be pennies in the future, which will be broken down into basic elements that can be put into paint or clothes. These are the things that exist. It's like, it's realizing that wanting something that is a restriction or a control of other people is only evident of our unwillingness to do the hard thing. Unwillingness to research what else is available. And if nothing else is available, stop fucking complaining and go out and build it. Like, stop griping about, you know, successful people because doing that, you demonize all the innovators that are trying to have a positive impact on the world. Anyone who complains about successful people sounds just as horribly entitled as somebody who complains about poor people or those in poverty. It's like hating people in poverty is just the same as hating people that are successful. It's realizing that, you know... It's a lack of empathy on both sides, plain and simple. An unwillingness to listen past things that make your skin crawl because you don't want to admit that you're weak and you won't do what it takes to work out your emotional intelligence to get stronger. I did this most of my adult life. This is why it is utterly shocking to people who have known me longest that I grew up in a way that they don't know how to believe. That other people who are content with contentment and not progressing themselves any other way than maybe intellectually, like they completely reject emotional intelligence or they completely reject spiritual intelligence. It depends what end of the spectrum they're on. I have a lot of people that don't believe in religion anymore who reject emotional intelligence and a lot of people who, you know, are into religion that reject spiritual intelligence. But finding a harmony between intellectualism and, you know, emotional intellectualism and spiritual intellectualism means you have to go beyond spiritual knowledge. You have to go beyond emotional knowledge. You have to go beyond intellectual knowledge. It's you have to find a harmony between the emotion, the data, and the spirit. Or else, you know, you're just going to be blaming other people for not being as wobbly as you. And you're going to accuse them of being, you know, crazy for believing that they're stable because they have 
a three-legged stool and you're trying to justify your one-legged or two-legged stool because you're like you know, all the other people that are like you in your collective reasoning. This feels accusatory or judgmental, but it's not. I'm pretty much saying this to my past self, realizing that my past self would fucking hate me for saying this, would find a really intelligent way to mock me and ridicule me and dismiss me and make a joke about me so that they could ignore me and hopefully other people would too. Because that's the the danger of when intellectualism turns into hyper-intellectualism. And some people dabble in emotional knowledge and spiritual knowledge. And eventually towards the end of the life, end of their life, they may understand emotional intelligence or spiritual intelligence. But I find very few people that are trying to practice spiritual intelligence, emotional intelligence, and, you know, what we consider the all-encompassing intelligence right now, data-based intelligence. But that's the only way you get to wisdom. And wisdom isn't a goal. It isn't a goal line. Wisdom either happens or doesn't happen before you die. That's it. And it's, it's not a goal. You don't become wise. You're just practicing wisdom. It's the difference between people who think more than they do. This is why even Yoda would say, you know, there is no try. You either do or do not. You can think and know of a lot of ways to try something. But if you're only open to trying, you're never going to do the crazy thing and just keep doing it until you figure out either, you know, you know wrong or what what you thought you knew is right. It just was a little bit messier to get there than you expected. This is This is the inconvenient truth of an extreme dualism society that's really great at justifying. The reality of justifications is justification is just like masturbation. In the end, you're only screwing yourself. So I don't usually do this, but I have a follow-up to the episode you just listened to. If you are looking for a guide on logic or logical fallacies, one of the most concise and best represented books I've ever uh, had the pleasure of getting to read. Um, It's written for both adults and children alike, so it's really great to share with uh, family and friends of any age um, and any disposition to reading. Uh, And it is an illustrated book of bad habits. I highly suggest uh, taking a listen to this. It's a little under an hour long. I have an audio version of it available at the end of this podcast. Um, And it is just amazing. And I highly, highly suggest going to support uh, the author in, in this, even just checking out uh, their website, uh, bookofbadhabits.com, uh, or Google an illustrated book of bad habits. Check it out on uh, Amazon. Check it out on their website. It's available for free to um, read on the website. You can get this audiobook version on Audible and other places, um, and you can get a Kindle version on Amazon. You can get uh, a printed version from the website or Amazon. Um, they are 
very, very great in explaining simply in a way that anyone can understand something that, you know, is intelligent as I ever used to believe that I was. This is what I needed to actually not just hear logic and fallacies, but to listen to it and to start implementing it and to integrate it as something that I practice daily and actively work to help other people practice. All right. I love you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And uh, please stay tuned for that right after uh, a quick ad from uh, Anchor, uh, as you can hear it is in my voice. And uh, please, please support uh, the official release um, at the website mentioned previously, and it will be in the description below. All right. Thank you. This is Audible. An Illustrated Book of Bad Arguments by Ali Al-Masawi Read by James Gillis Who is this book for? This book is aimed at newcomers to the field of logical reasoning, particularly those who, to borrow a phrase from Pascal, are so made that they understand best through visuals. I have selected a small set of common errors in reasoning and visualized them using memorable illustrations that are supplemented with lots of examples. The hope is that the reader will learn from these pages some of the most common pitfalls and arguments and be able to identify and avoid them in practice. Preface The literature on logic and logical fallacies is wide and exhaustive. This work's novelty is in its use of illustrations to describe a small set of common errors in reasoning that plague a lot of our present discourse. The illustrations are partly inspired by allegories such as Orwell's Animal Farm, and partly by the humorous nonsense of works such as Lewis Carroll's Stories and Poems. Unlike such works, there isn't a narrative that ties them together. They are discrete scenes, connected only through style and theme, which better affords adaptability and reuse. Each fallacy has just one page of exposition, and so the terseness of the prose is intentional. Reading about things that one should not do is actually a useful learning experience. In his book On Writing, Stephen King writes, One learns most clearly what not to do by reading bad prose. He described his experience of reading a particularly terrible novel as the literary equivalent of a smallpox vaccination. The mathematician George Polya is quoted as having said in a lecture on teaching the subject that in addition to understanding it well, one must also know how to misunderstand it. This work primarily talks about things that one should not do in arguments. For many years, I spent part of my time writing software specifications using first-order predicate logic. It was an intriguing way of reasoning about invariance using discrete mathematics rather than the usual notation, English. It brought precision where there was potential ambiguity and rigor where there was some hand-waving. During the same time, I perused a few books on propositional logic, both modern and medieval, one of which was Robert Gula's A Handbook of Logical Fallacies. Gula's book reminded me of a list of heuristics that I had scribbled down in a notebook a decade ago about how to argue. They were the results of several years of arguing with strangers in online forums and had things like, try not to make general claims about things. That's obvious to me now, but to a schoolboy, it was an exciting realization. It quickly became evident that formalizing one's reasoning could lead to useful benefits, such as clarity of thought and expression, objectivity, and greater confidence. 
The ability to analyze arguments also helped provide a yardstick for knowing when to withdraw from discussions that would most likely be futile. Issues and events that affect our lives and the societies we live in, such as civil liberties and presidential elections, usually cause people to debate policies and beliefs. By observing some of that discourse, one gets the feeling that a noticeable amount of it suffers from the absence of good reasoning. The aim of some of the writing on logic is to help one realize the tools and paradigms that afford good reasoning, and hence lead to more constructive debates. Since persuasion is a function of not only logic but other things as well, it's helpful to be cognizant of those things. Rhetoric likely tops the list, and precepts such as the principle of parsimony come to mind, as do concepts such as the burden of proof and where it lies. The interested reader may wish to refer to the wide literature on the topic. In closing, the rules of logic are not laws of the natural world, nor do they constitute all of human reasoning. As Marvin Minsky asserts, ordinary common-sense reasoning is difficult to explain in terms of logical principles, as are analogies. Adding, logic no more explains how we think than grammar explains how we speak. Logic doesn't generate new truths, but allows one to verify the consistency and coherence of existing chains of thought. It is precisely for that reason that it provides an effective tool for the analysis and communication of ideas and arguments. San Francisco, July 2013 Logical Fallacies the first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Richard P. Feynman Argument from Consequences Arguing from consequences is speaking for or against the truth of a statement by appealing to the consequences of accepting or rejecting it. Just because a proposition leads to some unfavorable result, does not mean that it is false. Similarly, just because a proposition has good consequences does not all of a sudden make it true. As David Hackett Fisher puts it, it does not follow that a quality which attaches to an effect is transferable to the cause. In the case of good consequences, an argument may appeal to an audience's hopes, which at times takes the form of wishful thinking. In the case of bad consequences, such an argument may instead appeal to an audience's fears. For example, take Dostoevsky's line, If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Discussions of objective morality aside, the appeal to the apparent, grim consequences of a purely materialistic world says nothing about whether or not the antecedent is true. One should keep in mind that such arguments are fallacious only when they deal with propositions with objective truth values, and not when they deal with decisions or policies, such as a politician opposing the raising of taxes for fear that it will adversely impact the lives of constituents, for example. Easy cow. Let me get down and see what this sign here says. Experts agree. Cow emissions are killing our planet. Nonsense. 
If we get rid of our cows, do you know what would happen? We'd have to walk everywhere, and that would be terrible. Grandma has a bad back as it is, and old Joe could hardly walk ten feet without straining his ankle. Cow emissions are not killing our planet. Straw Man Intentionally caricaturing a person's argument with the aim of attacking the caricature rather than the actual argument is what is meant by putting up a straw man. Misrepresenting, misquoting, misconstruing and oversimplifying are all means by which one commits this fallacy. A straw man argument is usually one that is more absurd than the actual argument, making it an easier target to attack and possibly luring a person towards defending the more ridiculous argument rather than the original one. For example, My opponent is trying to convince you that we are evolved from monkeys who were swinging from trees. A truly ludicrous claim. This is clearly a misrepresentation of what evolutionary biology claims, which is the idea that humans and apes shared a common ancestor several million years ago. Misrepresenting the idea is much easier than refuting the evidence for it. Try to stay still, Toucan. I'm almost done. Yes, stay still. This is coming along nicely. The energetic, muscular and colourful toucan was completely misrepresented by one of the artists. Later on he showed the audience his painting, and criticised how dull and lifeless the toucan had looked. Appeal to Irrelevant Authority An appeal to authority is an appeal to one's sense of modesty which is to say an appeal to the feeling that others are more knowledgeable. The overwhelming majority of the things that we believe in, such as atoms and the solar system, are on reliable authority, as are all historical statements, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. One may reasonably appeal to pertinent authority, as scientists and academics typically do. An argument becomes fallacious when the appeal is to an authority who is not an expert on the issue at hand. A similar appeal worth noting is the appeal to vague authority, where an idea is attributed to a vague collective. For example, professors in Germany showed such and such to be true. A type of appeal to irrelevant authority is the appeal to ancient wisdom, where something is assumed to be true just because it was believed to be true some time ago. For example, astrology was practiced by technologically advanced civilizations, such as the ancient Chinese, therefore it must be true. One might also appeal to ancient wisdom to support things that are idiosyncratic, or that may change with time. For example, people used to sleep for nine hours a night many centuries ago, therefore we need to sleep for that long these days as well. There are all sorts of reasons that may have caused people to sleep for longer periods of time in the past. The fact that they did provides no evidence for the argument. I can't wait to see you tonight, Gina. 
The movie starts at nine, so perhaps we can go for a romantic walk along the river before then. One second, sweetheart, I have a call on the other line. Hello, Dr. Chimp speaking. Eau Claire, my dear, I cannot bear the thought of being away from you. What tonight? I'm afraid not, my love. I am... Um, you have a lot of lab work to finish. One second, Claire, I have a call on the other line. Hello, Dr. Chimp speaking. Ah, Maria, my one and only love. How are you doing? That sounds lovely. But too bad. I'll not be able to make it tonight. Peculiarly, Professor Chimp, the world's most distinguished living chemist, is often quoted about matters of fidelity. Equivocation Equivocation exploits the ambiguity of language by changing the meaning of a word during the course of an argument and using the different meanings to support some conclusion. A word whose meaning is maintained throughout an argument is described as being used univocally. Consider the following argument. How can you be against faith? When we take leaps of faith all the time, with friends and potential spouses and investments. Here the meaning of the word faith has shifted from a spiritual belief in a creator to a risky undertaking. A common invocation of this fallacy happens in discussions of science and religion, where the word why may be used in equivocal ways. In one context, it may be used as a word that seeks cause, which, as it happens, is the main driver of science. And in another, it may be used as a word that seeks purpose, and deals with morals and gaps which science may well not have answers to. For example, one may argue, science cannot tell us why things happen. Why do we exist? Why be moral? Thus, we need some other source to tell us why things happen. Hey, you're the queen from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. So I am. You know, fictional characters can easily show up in the works of other authors, so long as they're in the public domain. That's good to know, queen. Are you still offering jam every other day? Indeed. If you want to work as my lady's maid, I will offer you tuppence a week and jam every other day. But never today, since today is not any other day. You realise that's a logical fallacy, right? You're a fallacy. Thank you, Queen. That's very witty of you. False Dilemma a false dilemma is an argument that presents a set of two possible categories and assumes that everything in the scope of that which is being discussed must be an element of that set. If one of those categories is rejected, then one has to accept the other. For example, in the war on fanaticism, there are no sidelines. You are either with us or with the fanatics. In reality, there's a third option. One could very well be neutral. And a fourth option. One may be against both. And even a fifth option. One may empathize with elements of both. 
In The Strangest Man, it is mentioned that physicist Ernest Rutherford once told his colleague Niels Bohr a parable about a man who bought a parrot from a store only to return it because it didn't talk. After several such visits, the store manager eventually says, Oh, that's right. You wanted a parrot that talks. Please forgive me. I gave you the parrot that thinks. Now, clearly, Rutherford was using the parable to illustrate the genius of the silent Dirac. Though one can imagine how someone might use such a line of reasoning to suggest that a person is either silent and a thinker, or talkative and an imbecile. Which part of the avocado would you like to try? said the merchant. I want to try the middle bit, said the buyer, which appears to be missing. Not a cause for a cause. The fallacy assumes a cause for an event where there is no evidence that one exists. Two events may occur one after the other or together because they are correlated by accident or due to some other unknown event. One cannot conclude that they are causally connected without evidence. The recent earthquake was due to people disobeying the king is not a good argument. The fallacy has two specific types. After this, therefore, because of this, and with this, therefore, because of this. With the former, because an event precedes another, it is said to have caused it. With the latter, because an event happens at the same time as another, it is said to have caused it. In various disciplines, this is referred to as confusing correlation with causation. Here's an example paraphrased from comedian Stuart Lee. I can't say that because in 1976 I did a drawing of a robot and then Star Wars came out, and they must have copied the idea from me. Here's another one that I recently saw in an online forum. The attacker took down the railway company's website, and when I checked the schedule of arriving trains, what do you know? They were all delayed! What the poster failed to realise is that those trains rarely arrive on time, and so without any kind of scientific control, the inference is unfounded. Oh, as it turns out, eating chocolate and winning a Nobel Prize have been shown to be highly correlated, perhaps raising the hopes of many a chocolate eater. At the end of every night, and shortly before dawn, the beaver walks all the way to the top of the mountain and asks the sun to come out. The sun always does. Appeal to Fear The fallacy plays on the fears of an audience by imagining a scary future that would be of their making if some proposition were accepted, rather than provide evidence to show that a conclusion follows from a set of premises which may provide a legitimate cause for fear. Such arguments rely on rhetoric, threats, or outright lies. For example, I ask all employees to vote for my chosen candidate in the upcoming elections. If the other candidate wins, he will raise taxes, and many of you will lose your jobs. 
Here's another example, drawn from the novel The Trial. You should give me all your valuables before the police get here. They will end up putting them in the storeroom, and things tend to get lost in the storeroom. Here, although the argument is more likely a threat, albeit a subtle one, an attempt is made at reasoning. Blatant threats, or orders that do not attempt to provide evidence, should not be confused with this fallacy, even if they exploit one's sense of fear. An appeal to fear may proceed to describe a set of terrifying events that would occur as a result of accepting a proposition which has no clear causal links, making it reminiscent of a slippery slope. It may also provide one and only one alternative to the proposition being attacked, that of the attacker, in which case it would be reminiscent of a false dilemma. Thank you all for casting your votes for the new school dean. I'm pleased to reveal that the votes have been counted, and I shall now be announcing the winner. I bet Mr. Frog wins. No one deserves it more than him. Yes, he's the best. And the nominee with the most votes is... Mr. Hedgehog! Congratulations! Mr. Frog lost the election after Mr. Donkey convinced everyone that, if Mr. Frog became the school dean soon enough, the entire university would be run by frogs. Hasty Generalization This fallacy is committed when one generalizes from a sample that is either too small or too special to be representative of a population. For example, Asking ten people on the street what they think of the President's plan to reduce the deficit can in no way be said to represent the sentiment of the entire nation. Although convenient, hasty generalizations can lead to costly and catastrophic results. For instance, it may be argued that the engineering assumptions that led to the explosion of the Ariane 5 during its first launch were the result of a hasty generalization. The set of test cases that were used for the Ariane 4 controller were not broad enough to cover the necessary set of use cases in the Ariane 5's controller. Signing off on such decisions typically comes down to engineers' and managers' ability to argue, hence the relevance of this and similar examples to our discussion of logical fallacies. Here's another example from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where Alice infers that since she is floating in a body of water, a railway station, and hence help, must be close by. Alice had been to the seaside once in her life, and had come to the general conclusion that wherever you go to on the English coast, you find a number of bathing machines in the sea, some children digging in the sand with wooden spades, then a row of lodging houses, and behind them a railway station. Lewis Carroll Oh, what have we here? A circle-shaped nut. How delightful! You know, ever since I started paying attention to the shapes of nuts earlier today, I have yet to come across one that is not circle-shaped. I think it is therefore fair to say that all food everywhere is definitely circle-shaped. 
Yes, I have come out and said it. All food, everywhere, anywhere, in any universal dimension, is absolutely and undeniably circle-shaped. Oh, circle-shaped nut, thy beautiful eyes. Cat! Listen, you little rodent. I've had it with you. Just stick to the script and stop getting carried away. You're doing this for a little educational audiobook, for heaven's sake. We're not reenacting Hamlet. Okay, everyone, let's get it right this time. Take four. Appeal to Ignorance Such an argument assumes a proposition to be true simply because there's no evidence proving that it isn't. Hence, absence of evidence is taken to mean evidence of absence. Here is an example due to Carl Sagan. There is no compelling evidence that UFOs are not visiting the Earth. Therefore, UFOs exist. Similarly, when we didn't know how the pyramids were built, some concluded that unless proven otherwise, they must have therefore been built by a supernatural power. The burden of proof always lies with the person making a claim. Moreover, and as several others have put it, one must ask what is more likely and what is less likely, based on evidence from past observations. Is it more likely that an object flying through space is a man-made artifact or a natural phenomenon, or is it more likely that it is aliens visiting from another planet? Since we have frequently observed the former, and never the latter, it is therefore more reasonable to conclude that UFOs are unlikely to be aliens visiting from outer space. A specific form of the appeal to ignorance is the argument from personal incredulity, where a person's inability to imagine something leads to a belief that the argument being presented is false. For example, it is impossible to imagine that we actually landed a man on the moon, therefore it never happened. Responses of this sort are sometimes wittily counted with, that's why you're not a physicist. Oh, look, Rabbit, up there. It's a strange beam of light moving through the sky. Whoa! What you think it is? I don't know. It must be aliens visiting us from another planet. No True Scotsman A general claim may sometimes be made about a category of things. When faced with evidence challenging that claim, rather than accepting or rejecting the evidence, such an argument counters the challenge by arbitrarily redefining the criteria for membership into that category. For example, one may posit that programmers are creatures with no social skills. If someone comes along and repudiates that claim by saying, but John's a programmer, and he's not socially awkward at all, it may provoke the response, yes, but John isn't a true programmer. Here it's not clear what the attributes of a programmer are, nor is the category of programmers as clearly defined as the category of, say, people with blue eyes. The ambiguity allows the stubborn mind to redefine things at will. The fallacy was coined by Antony Flew in his book Thinking About Thinking. <laughs>
There he gives the following example. Hamish is reading the newspaper and comes across a story about an Englishman who has committed a heinous crime, to which he reacts by saying, No Scotsman would do such a thing. The next day he comes across a story about a Scotsman who's committed an even worse crime. Instead of amending his claim about Scotsman, he reacts by saying, No true Scotsman would do such a thing. When an attacker maliciously redefines a category, knowing well that by doing so he or she is intentionally misrepresenting it, the attack becomes reminiscent of the straw man fallacy. I can't wait to get in. I feel like tonight is my lucky night. Yes, me too. The line's moving pretty fast. We're almost there. <clears throat> Where do you think you two are going? We're here for the monthly single no more all-inclusive pig party. Only pigs are allowed in. We don't take too kindly to other species here. But we are pigs. Look at our IDs. Yeah, you see there, under breed, it says Berkshire. Oh, so you're Berkshire pigs. Well, sorry, only true pigs can come in. Genetic Fallacy An argument's origins, or the origins of the person making it, have no effect whatsoever on the argument's validity. A genetic fallacy is committed when an argument is either devalued or defended solely because of its history. As T. Edward Dammer points out, when one is emotionally attached to an idea's origins, it's not always easy to disregard the former when evaluating the latter. Consider the following argument. Of course he supports the union workers on strike. He's, after all, from the same village. Here, rather than evaluating the argument based on its merits, it's dismissed because the person happens to come from the same village as the protesters. That piece of information is then used to infer that the person's argument is therefore worthless. Here is another example. As men and women living in the 21st century, we cannot continue to hold these Bronze Age beliefs. Why not, one may ask? Are we to dismiss all ideas that originated in the Bronze Age simply because they came about in that time period? Conversely, one may also invoke the genetic fallacy in a positive sense by saying, for example, Jack's views on art cannot be contested. He comes from a long line of eminent artists. Here, the evidence used for the inference is as lacking as in the previous examples. And so, Your Highness, that is why I believe light to be both a wave and a particle. I am impressed. This is very, very interesting. <coughs> With all due respect, Your Highness, how can we entertain the ideas of a dog who developed his ideas while on the street? Guilt by Association Guilt by association is discrediting an argument for proposing an idea that is shared by some socially demonized individual or group. For example, 
My opponent is calling for a healthcare system that would resemble that of socialist countries. Clearly, that would be unacceptable. Whether or not the proposed healthcare system resembles that of socialist countries has no bearing whatsoever on whether it's good or bad. It's a complete non sequitur. Another type of argument which has been repeated ad nauseam in some societies is this. We cannot let women drive cars because people in godless countries let their women drive cars. Essentially, what this and previous examples try to argue is that some group of people is absolutely and categorically bad. Hence, sharing even a single attribute with said group would make one a member of it, which would then bestow on one all the evils associated with that group. My opponent believes that we should spend more on education. Do you know who else thinks that? The dictator himself. Was it not he who said a prosperous dictatorship is an educated dictatorship? I rest my case. Affirming the Consequent One of several valid forms of argument is known as modus ponens, the mode of affirming by affirming, and takes the following form. If A, then C, A, hence C. More formally, A implies C, A therefore C. Here we have three propositions, two premises and a conclusion. A is called the antecedent and C the consequent. For example, if water is boiling at sea level, then its temperature is at least 100 degrees Celsius. This glass of water is boiling at sea level, hence its temperature is at least 100 degrees Celsius. Such an argument is valid in addition to being sound. Affirming the consequent is a formal fallacy that takes the following form. If A, then C, C, hence A. The error it makes is in assuming that if the consequent is true, then the antecedent must also be true, which in reality need not be the case. For example, People who go to university are more successful in life. John is successful, hence he must have gone to university. Clearly, John's success could be a result of schooling, but it could also be a result of his upbringing, or perhaps his eagerness to overcome difficult circumstances. More generally, one cannot say that because schooling implies success, that if one is successful, then one must have received schooling. Halt! Stranger! Let me see your papers. Knights wear armour, stranger. And yet you are wearing armour and are not a knight. Well, Gad, not everyone who wears armour has to be a knight. What do you mean? The Queen asked me to come and entertain the children at little Margaret's birthday party. She wanted me to show up in a knight's outfit and dance to the tune of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. 
The concept of the animated feature film was yet to be invented, stranger. Well, every story needs a plot hole. Appeal to Hypocrisy Also known by its Latin name, tu quoque, meaning you too. The fallacy involves countering a charge with a charge, rather than addressing the issue being raised, with the intention of diverting attention away from the original argument. For example, John says, This man is wrong, because he has no integrity. Just ask him why he was fired from his last job, to which Jack replies, how about we talk about the fat bonus you took home last year, despite half your company being downsized? The appeal to hypocrisy may also be invoked when a person attacks another because what he or she is arguing for conflicts with his or her past actions. On an episode of the topical British TV show Have I Got News For You, a panellist objected to a protest in London against corporate greed because of the protesters' apparent hypocrisy, by pointing out that while they appear to be against capitalism, they continue to use smartphones and buy coffee. Here's another example from Jason Reitman's movie Thank You for Smoking, where a two-coque-laden exchange is ended by the smooth-talking tobacco lobbyist Nick Naylor. I'm just tickled by the idea of the gentleman from Vermont calling me a hypocrite when this same man in one day held a press conference where he called for the American tobacco fields to be slashed and burned, then he jumped on a private jet and flew down to Farm Aid, where he rode a tractor on stage as he bemoaned the downfall of the American farmer. Why do you keep eating my porridge? I suspect it is because you are too lazy to make your own, and therefore find it easier to eat mine. How about I start listing all of your bad habits? How is that possibly a pertinent response to my accusation? Slippery Slope A slippery slope attempts to discredit a proposition by arguing that its acceptance will undoubtedly lead to a sequence of events one or more of which are undesirable. Though it may be the case that the sequence of events may happen, each transition occurring with some probability, this type of argument assumes that all transitions are inevitable, all the while providing no evidence in support of that. The fallacy plays on the fears of an audience and is related to a number of other fallacies, such as the appeal to fear the false dilemma, and the argument from consequences. For example, we shouldn't allow people uncontrolled access to the Internet. The next thing you know, they'll be frequenting pornographic websites, and soon enough our entire moral fabric will disintegrate and we will be reduced to animals. As is glaringly clear, no evidence is given other than the unfounded conjecture that Internet access implies the disintegration of a society's moral fabric, while also presupposing certain things about the conduct. Listen carefully, son. 
if you let a bully come in your front yard, he will be on your porch the next day, and the day after that he will eat your babies. Ah! Or that escalated quickly. Appeal to the Bandwagon Also known as the appeal to the people, such an argument uses the fact that a sizable number of people, or perhaps even a majority, believe in something, as evidence that it must therefore be true. Some of the arguments that have impeded the widespread acceptance of pioneering ideas are of this type. Galileo, for example, faced ridicule from his contemporaries for his support of the Copernican model. More recently, Barry Marshall had to take the extreme measure of dosing himself in order to convince the scientific community that peptic ulcers may be caused by the bacterium Helicobacter pylori a theory that was initially widely dismissed. Luring people into accepting that which is popular is a method frequently used in advertising and politics. For example, all the cool kids use this hair gel. Be one of them. Although becoming a cool kid is an enticing offer, it does nothing to support the imperative that one should buy the advertised product. Politicians frequently use similar rhetoric to add momentum to their campaigns and influence voters. Come on! It's a joyous occasion! It's a party! Everyone is celebrating! Just wear this party hat! But why? Well, because everyone else is wearing one, that's why! Well, that is certainly a compelling line of reasoning, Father. I suspect that that will come in very handy. Ad hominem An ad hominem argument is one that attacks a person's character, rather than what he or she is saying, with the intention of diverting the discussion and discrediting the person's argument. For example, you're not a historian, why don't you stick to your own field? Here, whether or not the person is a historian has no impact on the merit of their argument and does nothing to strengthen the attacker's position. This type of personal attack is referred to as abusive ad hominem. A second type, known as circumstantial ad hominem, is any argument that attacks a person for cynical reasons by making a judgment about their intentions. For example, you don't really care about lowering crime in the city, you just want people to vote for you. There are situations where one may legitimately bring into question a person's character and integrity, such as during a testimony. Your ad hominem attacks are evidence that your arguments are baseless wrote user 226 following a heated discussion in an online chat room, Rodney began typing his reply. You appear to be too stupid to understand the difference between an insult and an ad hominem attack. Circular Reasoning Circular reasoning is one of four types of arguments known as begging the question where one implicitly or explicitly assumes the conclusion 
in one or more of the premises. In secular reasoning, a conclusion is either blatantly used as a premise, or more often it's reworded to appear as though it's a different proposition, when in fact it's not. For example, You're utterly wrong, because you're not making any sense. Here the two propositions are one and the same, since being wrong and not making any sense in this context mean the same thing. The argument is simply stating, because of X, therefore X, which is meaningless. A circular argument may at times rely on unstated premises, which can make it more difficult to detect. Here is an example from the Australian television series Please Like Me, where one of the characters condemns the other, a non-believer, to hell, to which she responds, That doesn't make any sense. It's like a hippie threatening to punch you in your aura. In this example, the unstated premise is that there exists a God who sends a subset of people to hell. Hence, the premise, there exists a God who sends non-believers to hell, is used to support the conclusion, there exists a God who sends non-believers to hell. The young apprentice tied two wooden boards to his arms and took position. Though anxious, he was excited by Master Sea Lion's promise that he too could fly like the birds. Are you sure that I won't fall to the ground, Master? Yes, little one. Trust in the book. Need I remind you of chapter 1, verse 1 of the book according to Sea Lion? Sea Lion is always right. Composition and Division Composition is inferring that a whole must have a particular attribute because its parts happen to have that attribute. If every sheep in a flock has a mother, it does not then follow that the flock has a mother, to paraphrase Peter Milliken. Here is another example. Each module in this software system has been subjected to a set of unit tests and has passed them all. Therefore, when the modules are integrated, the software system will not violate any of the invariants verified by those unit tests. The reality is that the integration of individual parts introduces new complexities to a system due to dependencies that may, in turn, introduce additional avenues for potential failure. Division, conversely, is inferring that a part must have some attribute because the whole to which it belongs happens to have that attribute. For example, our team is unbeatable. Any of our players would be able to take on a player from any other team and outshine him. While it may be true that the team as a whole is unbeatable, one cannot use that as evidence to infer that each of its players is thus unbeatable. A team's success is clearly not always the sum of the individual skills of its players. Final Remarks Many years ago I heard a professor introduce deductive arguments using a wonderful metaphor, describing them as watertight pipes where truth goes in one end and truth comes out the other end. 
As it happens, that was the inspiration for this book's cover. Having reached the end of this book, I hope that you leave not only with a better appreciation of the benefits of watertight arguments in validating and expanding knowledge, but also of the complexities of inductive arguments where probabilities come into play. With such arguments in particular, critical thinking proves an indispensable tool. I hope that you also leave with a realization of the dangers of flimsy arguments and how commonplace they are in our everyday lives. Definitions Proposition A statement that is either true or false, but not both. For example, Boston is the largest city in Massachusetts. Premise A proposition that provides support to an argument's conclusion an argument may have one or more premises. Argument A set of propositions aimed at persuading through reasoning. In an argument, a subset of propositions called premises provide support for some other proposition, called the conclusion. Deductive arguments An argument in which, if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. The conclusion is said to follow with logical necessity from the premises. For example, All men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. A deductive argument is intended to be valid, but of course might not be. Inductive argument An argument in which if the premises are true, then it is probable that the conclusion will also be true. The conclusion, therefore, does not follow with logical necessity from the premises, but rather with probability. For example, every time we measure the speed of light in a vacuum, it is 3 times 10 to the power 8 meters per second. Therefore, the speed of light in a vacuum is a universal constant. Inductive arguments usually proceed from specific instances to the general. In science, one usually proceeds inductively from data to laws to theories. Hence, induction is the foundation of much of science. Induction is typically taken to mean testing a proposition on a sample, either because it would be impracticable or impossible to do otherwise. Logical fallacy An error in reasoning that results in an invalid argument. Errors are strictly to do with the reasoning used to transition from one proposition to the next, rather than with the facts. Put differently, an invalid argument for an issue does not necessarily mean that the issue is unreasonable. Logical fallacies are violations of one or more of the principles that makes a good argument, such as good structure, consistency, clarity, order, relevance, and completeness. Formal fallacy a logical fallacy whose form does not conform to the grammar and rules of inference of a logical calculus. The argument's validity can be determined just by analysing its abstract structure without needing to evaluate its contents. Informal fallacy A logical fallacy that is due to its content and context rather than its form. The error in reasoning ought to be a commonly invoked one for the argument to be considered an informal fallacy. Validity 
A deductive argument is valid if its conclusion logically follows from its premises. Otherwise, it's said to be invalid. The descriptors valid and invalid apply only to arguments and not to propositions. Soundness A deductive argument is sound if it is valid and its premises are true. If either of those conditions does not hold, then the argument is unsound. Truth is determined by looking at whether the argument's premises and conclusions are in accordance with facts in the real world. Strength An inductive argument is strong if in the case that its premises are true, then it is highly probable that its conclusion is also true. Otherwise, if it is improbable that its conclusion is true, then it's said to be weak. Inductive arguments are not truth-preserving. It's never the case that a true conclusion must follow from true premises. Cogency An inductive argument is cogent if it is strong and the premises are actually true, that is, in accordance with facts. Otherwise, it is said to be uncogent. Falsifiability An attribute of a proposition or argument that allows it to be refuted or disproved through observation or experiment. For example, the proposition, all leaves are green, may be refuted by pointing to a leaf that is not green. Falsifiability is a sign of an argument's strength rather than of its weakness. This has been an illustrated book of bad arguments, written by Ali Al-Mosawi and narrated by James Gillis. Copyright and production copyright have been asserted in 2013 by Ali Al-Mosawi. Production facilities for this audiobook were provided by Yard's Head Productions in the UK. This has been an illustrated book of bad arguments, written by Ali Al-Mosawi and narrated by James Gillis. Copyright and production copyright have been asserted in 2013 by Ali Al-Mosawi. Production facilities for this audiobook were provided by Yard's Head Productions in the UK. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.